The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a no-crust, white-bread, tuna-fish-eating undercover agent takes his hidden passion for danger and full-throttle speed to the streets? Would he be able to resist the gleaming slick allure of modified imports, the thrill of the asphalt, and the charm of Vin Diesel? Could this, would this, homage to both 1950s drive-in teenage exploits and the 1930s highway bandit westerns find its own voice for the modern audience in 2001? A voice which proudly promised, with every growl of its custom-blown 528-cubic-inch Hemi V8 engine, would not only be fast, but furious? Well, let's find out. Because today we are racing our way through Rob Cohen's 2001 The Fast and the Furious. So sit back, engage all systems, and cross-strap in as we revisit the comparatively humble origins of the lifestyle film that would eventually become one of the largest grossing surprise franchises in film history. Brought to you by the lucrative highway robbery of DVD players, serving up full-throttle testosterone on a chrome platter, kneading that NOS, and of course, family. And also, of course, our safe word today is slow. Anything to add, Benji? London, after a lot of practice, I have finally perfected my Vin Diesel impersonation. So I'm going to give you the the big line. Here we go. All right. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. (laughs) Oh, boy. Wait, what? It's funny because it's Mickey Mouse, and Mickey Mouse doesn't sound like Vin Diesel. So, yeah. You do zig sometimes when I expect you to zag. (laughs) You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! (laughs) Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. Hi, London. Yo, Benji. I, I know, you're confused. You're still just blown away by, like, did Vin Diesel just walk into the room? How did that happen? I impress myself sometimes, too, I admit. I you're admit. the only one that does. <laughs> All right. So, speaking of Vin Diesel, what did we watch for today? Today we watched the first movie in a series of movies that we're really big fans of. I think everyone should love the first Fast and the Furious film because it's fucking fantastic. It is a super fun film. And I am here today to tell you why, if you do not like this movie, why you were wrong. Why you're so, so wrong. Roger Ebert, I'll go ahead and get to his review now. His review of this film does, I think, just sum up why it works for me so well. In his review, he just says, this movie is not a masterpiece. But I still like it. It delivers what it promises. It gives you great action. It understands that chase scenes are more than just about special effects. They're about heart and, you know, honor among friends. And it's great. 
This part kind of bugs me, though. He says, it's way better than other recent all-action no-plot movies like Gone in 60 Seconds. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, oh, don't go hating Roger on... Roger Ebert, our buddy Roger Ebert hating against Gone 60 Seconds. Damn, son, come on. Jeez. No, Gone in 60 Seconds, also a really fun movie, but Fast and the Furious is better. I'm going to throw that hot take down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come fight me. Yeah, yeah, that's they'll be the one that really divides our fan base. They're like, no, how dare you? You don't have any fans. Okay. So, <laughs> yes, Fast and the Furious from 2001 is a Rob Cohen film. And lightning summary first to really establish this film. For those of you who don't know the Fast and the Furious film for some reason, is that we are going to have young Paul Walker, and he's going to be an undercover cop. Now, we don't know this from the beginning, and so spoiler alert right up front mm. is that... He is an undercover cop who has been tasked to look into a series of highway bandit robberies, but vehicular version. So little cars, three Honda Civics have been terrorizing large trucks full of Panasonic DVD players to heist them. And this is a problem. So he's going undercover into the street racing world of Los Angeles to try to figure out who among these street racing groups might be, in fact, the Highway Panasonic Bandits. And in the process, he's going to fall in love with that scene, and he's going to have a choice to make between staying with the law or becoming an outlaw. That's pretty much the plot of this film. Also, that, yeah. family. <laughs> family that. is also the important plot of this film. Oh, boy, family! See, right there. You know, you're like, whoa, Vin Diesel says it. That's... Yeah, because the missing ingredient to making that funny the first time was repetition. All right, so what is the best thing about this film, Benji? I think that the best thing about this film is the energy that it maintains, despite the fact that compared to later films, this film is very low-key. There is a race towards the beginning of the film. You have a few action scenes here and there. But a lot of this film upon rewatching really does seem to be, hey, let's chill out, have a barbecue. Hey, let's go work in a car. Uh, let's go over to the shop and talk about car parts for a little bit. This is a very chill kind of film. And yet, despite that, through the camera work and editing, this thing just keeps that pace and that energy moving. Yeah. What's the worst thing? The weird continuity blips that happen in this film. And I say that because literally that is the worst thing about this film. And there are not really many other things about this film that I dislike or that upset me or that I think take it down a notch. Yeah, best thing. There's so many best things about this film. <laughs> this film just makes me really happy. And so that might be the best thing overall. But why it makes me happy is a couple of reasons. One, Rob Cohen is going to go on to describe this as a lifestyle film, that it's not a crime film, it's not a racing film, it's not an action film, that it is quote-unquote lifestyle. And what he means by that is that it is in some ways as close to an ethnographic documentary as one could get while still making a major blockbuster fictitious hit. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to, at some point, fall in love with the street racing scene. He's really going to study it. He's going to try to bring a lot of that in, up to actually bringing a lot of the components of actual street racing culture into the frames of the film itself. And we'll get into that later. 
So you can kind of feel the culture of street racing in this movie. And mm. on one point, I do work in the film industry, but on the other part, I also work in anthropology. And so the anthropologist <laughs> in me is yeah. very, very happy by the ethnographic work in this film. And then the film-loving part of me really loves this film because it is way better on a technical level than one would anticipate. <laughs> My worst thing about this film is unfair because it's a little paratextual. So being outside of the film itself, and that's two things. One is just in comparison to the rest of the franchise series, I do really enjoy and adore the entire Fast and the Furious franchise. It's actually one of the reasons Benji and I are reluctant acquaintances in the first place. Don't you dare say that F word. Dear God. But yeah, I, yes. I can't use... <laughs> there are many yeah, F words to throw around. Acquaintanceship. We have on multiple occasions marathoned these films together. And I think that the one and only time you and I are ever going to both get teary-eyed in a movie theater was at the very end of Fast 7. Oh my God, yeah. So both Benji and I cried at the end of Fast and the Furious 7, and it was hilarious, and we're like, we must never speak of this again. (laughs) Unless we ever make a podcast about films, in which case that's kind of hilarious, and we should definitely tell people. But yeah, I remember coming out of that movie and saying to myself, I just cried at the end of a Fast and the Furious movie. What fucking universe is this? And uh, that actually gets into my second... I guess paratextual worst thing, but the first to continue on with this idea of I do like the rest of the franchise, but there's something about this first one that's just so down to earth and humble compared to the rest of the franchise that I do think it's the best one. And so there's a bittersweet sadness to Mm. know that no Fast and the Furious will yet top to me what is a really tight, well filmed Mm -hmm. script in the way that this first one does. So in a way, it's all downhill from here, but that's taken with a grain of salt because Tokyo Drift, amazing. Like, Fast Five, great. Yeah. The crazy Dubai jumping action sequence (laughs) in F7, great. So, like, there's a lot of fun parts to come, but, yeah, nothing will quite capture the first one ever again. And then, of course, the other bittersweet sadness of watching this is that for some reason, watching... Paul Walker in this movie is so bittersweet and sad in a way that for me, sometimes watching other actors who have died tragically before, you know, their time or dying young or whatnot, that I can watch their films and not necessarily like feel that ghost over the film. Mm -hmm. But with Paul Walker, I feel that watching this first one where it's just like this bittersweet Mm. thing to be like, oh, Paul Walker. And I think that has to do with the type of death that he had in conjunction with these movies. So for people who don't know, Paul Walker did die in a car accident that wasn't on set. It was unrelated to the Fast and the Furious franchise. But Mm. because I think there's that link there to know that that's sort of going to be his tragic end is dying in a terrible collision, that there's something that you can't separate that happening from the film franchise. And Vin Diesel makes it no secret that he and Paul were very close friends and that many of the regular recurring cast members were very close and that him passing away was something really hard for them to get over. And I think Furious 7 definitely was about as good of a send-off for a character and a performer that a movie ever can get. It's very heartfelt. It was very poignant, which is why Benji and I cried at a goddamn Fast and the Furious movie. (laughs) (laughs) All coming back around. But the heartfelt action or that heartfelt approach, bringing it back to this first one too, 
is what makes this first one so well. It is a loving look at a lifestyle. And Rob Cohen, I, I know that you listen. I didn't have a chance to listen to the director's commentary uh, for this listen, but I have listened to it in the past. And I feel like I remember it fairly well. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, Rob Cohen, he loves what he's doing here. He just loves these kids. He loves the scene he got to make a film out of. He's just so happy to be able to do yes, this. No, he remains very, very proud of the first Fast and the Furious film, as he should be, because one of the things that we will be talking about throughout this episode is a lot of the technical things that went into making this film to try to persuade you as to why this is actually a technically really stunning film. Also, looking at some of the car culture. I did some research on locations. I found out this was filmed in L.A. Yeah, I mean, you could also watch the film and deduce that it's shot in L.A. (laughs) I mean, you do have to work that out. There are some subtle clues, subtle clues there, but... uh, Yeah, so some pretty solid, clear (laughs) clues. But yeah, let's set up this film. Where did this title come from, Benji? This title comes from a very strange place. This is also the name, The Fast and the Furious of a 1954 Roger Corman film about a murderer who kidnaps this woman race car driver and uses the racing car to try and get away from the police. And there's also a scene that's set outside of Coachella, so weird tie-ins with this film. But as I understand it, this film was originally going to be called Redline. I think I read that somewhere. And then they wanted to call it The Fast and the Furious, which is a much better title. And they had to make a deal with Roger Corman for the title rights. Obviously not the story rights, because they had their own original thing. Yeah, Roger Corman, super important. Directed a ton of films, produced a ton of films, written a ton of films. So he just Mm -hmm. sort of does it all. Known for these campy, B-rated exploitation films, largely throughout the 50s and 70s. But did trade the rights to the Fast and the Furious title for stock footage from Rob Cohen. Don't know why, don't know what, but that is apparently the deal that was made according to the sources that we could find and according to Rob Cohen himself is what he claimed he traded Roger Corman. And, well, actually, first, like, the title of The Fast and the Furious does sound very much like a 1950s mm-hmm. teenage exploitation driving, yeah, drive-in yeah. movie title. So it mm-hmm. already does kind of evoke that bygone era of titling, which is kind of great. And... It is inspired by an article that appeared in Vibe magazine that was titled Racer X. This was written by a journalist named Kenneth Lee. It is a little article that tells the tale of a group of street racers in Queens, New York. So the movie itself is going to take place in L.A., but this is inspired by a racing circuit out of Queens. And it focuses primarily on a Dominican street racer named Rafael Estevez. I did not double check if that's like his actual name or if this is what he is known as in the journal article and thus in like subsequent kind of media, Mm. but he's from Washington Heights, New York. And yeah, apparently he's this great street racer in the scene that nobody could beat. And so this is going to be our Dom character that later is going to manifest Vin Diesel's character is based off of Rafael Estevez. This was pitched to Rob Cohen and he's like okay I mean maybe and then he went and he saw a street race for the first time on San Fernando Road at 2 a.m. and he was hooked he's like you know what this stuff this is awesome (laughs) we can totally make a movie about this 
So he really wanted to get everything right because he fell in love with the street racing community. He got a lot of actual street racers to be technical consultants. He got Craig Lieberman to come in as their technical advisor, who is a car dude, builds a lot of cars, was already frequenting the scene. And so he was also this liaison between the street racing community and the film and all of the car builds and whatnot. I'll be pointing out throughout where, like, the accuracy versus the inaccuracy of some of the street culture comes in. Because there were times in the commentary where Rob Cohen pointed out, like, yeah, okay, so that right there, that's an exaggeration. (laughs) That wouldn't happen, but it just looks cooler. So I'll let you know where those pop up. How much did this movie cost? This movie cost about $40 million to make, which you think, yeah, that's how much you make movies for. But remember, this is meant to be a summer blockbuster movie. This came out in June of 2001. Pretty big film, and $40 million was about what you would be spending on a nice walk-and-talk kind of movie, you know, a romantic comedy with some big stars. This movie didn't have a very big budget, but this movie made some bank. $40 million budget, $200 million worldwide gross. And I looked up a few stats just to kind of compare. Swordfish, which also came out June 2001, $100 million to make, but only made $150 million. Evolution, that comedy with David Duchovny. Oh, God, I forgot about that movie. Yeah, most people have. I kind of forgot about myself until I looked this up. $80 million to make, $98 million worldwide gross. Dr. Doolittle 2, you know, the fine days for Eddie Murphy. $70 million to make that movie. Made 176 million. So still, these are all making less than Fast and the Furious. Mm -hmm. And then this one surprised me. Moulin Rouge, $50 million budget, but only made $185 million. I say only made $185 million, Mm -hmm. but I remember that movie being a much bigger deal. So I was surprised it didn't make more than Fast and the Furious. I figured that one would easily go over, but eh, who knew? I'm surprised that they were able to make Moulin Rouge on $50 million. There's a lot of effects and set builds and costume. There's a lot of stuff in Moulin Rouge. But uh, anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Let's actually get into this film. This film is going to open. It starts hard and fast. This film starts fast and furious. It holds up to its title because... We're like four seconds in, and I already remember why I love this movie. And that's because the music starts. The image just wipes onto the screen with this zoom sound effect. And there's this crate dangling overhead. It's bathed in this orange light and heat. And the title card appears, but only a section of it. Because it's too zoomed in to read. We're just Mm -hmm. getting snippets and fragments. We can only see the chrome of this title card. This title is going to keep flipping until we pull back enough to see it. And all the while, it's reflecting the images around it in this convex shine. And I'm like, this is way cooler and a little artier than you'd expect for a 2001 car racing movie. Like, it is cool. It's doing a lot of stuff. Also, very obviously, a digital effect. You can probably go and onto YouTube and find a tutorial for how to recreate this in something like After Effects. But in 2001, that was hard to do. Yeah. Respect. And then we get a transport interior shot on a whole bunch of box Panasonics. I hope Panasonic gave all of the money to this movie because all of the important things that are being stolen are Panasonic things. We're told that there are DVD players, but I, (laughs) as my list here shows, I stopped this down 
went frame by frame. I'm like, okay, what are these? And in this, the, I mean, you can see model numbers. I won't waste your time on that. But we have 9-inch TV VCR combos, a 13-inch TV VCR combos, a 20-inch CRT, a VCR with an S-Video output, a somewhat fancier VCR with S-Video output, and a VHS-C camcorder. You know, each of those... The cheapest thing is about $200 there. The most expensive thing is about $500 there. So, you know. Are those 2001 prices or are those the current list Those are 2001 prices. I did the math. And if you hear a price, add half. So something that costs $500 in 2000 when this was being filmed would be about $750 today. So not a a drastic difference. No. The guy who's loading this truck, he's going to load it, and it it still is a cool shot, even though it is really improperly packed, especially for electronics, but we are going to start at the back of the truck, and it's going to zoom out, so we're going to get this full just line of all of these Panasonic boxes. And then there's going to be a guy who's loading the truck, and he calls somebody on his 2001 cell phone to give them a heads up that the goods are on the move. And he wants his cut. And I find like this is a moment that is super easy to miss Mm -hmm. that this guy is... He's the end. Yeah, kind of their inside man. He's letting them know exactly when this truck is leaving and where it's going to be, which fills in the question of how do they know what unmarked truck to hit? It's like, well, they do have an inside deal. You don't need to have that in there. You could just assume that they know which truck is which, but it happens quick enough that it's extra information that doesn't slow anything down. So right away, we see that efficiency and information that this movie is going to be giving us throughout. We don't dwell too long on any one thing because the night has come and the Panasonics are on the move. Night comes fast around here. Three black cars... Honda Civics, to be specific. Three black Honda Civics, you say. Three of them. That's three. Three of them. That's important. Three. With neon green underlights, enter the scene. It's a fun way to establish these three cars is this wheeled ninja unit, because they just come (laughs) zipping into the frame. They're all sleek in these black-coated paint with these green underlights. Mm -hmm. It's a cool look. And they are going to engage in this highway robbery scene, which Rob Cohen openly admits that he quote-unquote borrowed and or stole from and or borrowed from John Ford's movie Stagecoach, Mm -hmm. which is a 1930s Western. And he really thinks of this film, like Walter Hill, he thinks of all his films as a Western, not all of them, but this one in particular. I would say this one especially, yeah. This one does feel very much like a Western. You get that right out the gate where... Instead of the stagecoach, you have this big transport truck. And then instead of these little bandits on horses, you have the three black cars. But as they zoom up along the side of this transport truck, it is filmed very similarly to the way that we would have a highway robbery scene in a Western. I would say it stole liberally from Stagecoach and also National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation because one of the cars griswolds underneath the truck, really for no reason. It just goes underneath it and I've seen videos about that kind of stunt that is one of the most dangerous car stunts that you can do because if the car or the truck driver is off by a few inches you've got disaster on your hands yeah it looks really really cool though Mm -hmm. why they decided to do the stunt of moving it under the car is because 
generally in a stagecoach robbery like thing in westerns and in stagecoach mm-hmm. there's always like a cliff and the runaway horses oh, and yeah, some out, sort yeah. of thing that you have to stop before you go over and they're like no we don't want to stop in this movie it's fast it's furious but our equivalent of that is going to be that will have the road suddenly up ahead start to narrow due to construction into one lane. And so they have to compress themselves so that they don't go into the pit or the construction that's happening on either side. So yeah, it goes under the car for a moment mm-hmm. to get past the one lane construction. All right. So there is reasons. Okay. And there is reasons. All right. I'll allow it. So they successfully rob this truck. Yes. They trank the dude because... <laughs> They are very careful to show that these people do not kill their marks. They just trank them. And then the city pans over L.A. at night. And the night is going to fade to day. It's very quick, and it's a crazy, smooth, cool transition. Day and night. They're just like, let's keep it going here, folks. <laughs> it's a very, very cool transition, especially, once again, for 2001. We're really entering just the early stages of so many digital effects in a film. This is going to happen in a way that is hyper-stylized. And Mm -hmm. Rob Cohen's comment on this in the commentary was that this transfer of the night today was, quote-unquote, the opening declaration of a stylistic conceit that this movie, although based on the streets, was going to have an operatic and intensely visual nature. Mm -hmm. And then going on to talk about how it also really helped set up this idea that this film is not going to use standard transitions. They're going to be a little exaggerated, and we're going to speed up those dissolves. What that ultimately allowed them to do was have a more seamless reason or excuse to take out shots of people and excess traffic on the streets throughout the rest of the movie, Mm -hmm. because we have that hyper-lapse speed that's going on here. And it's cool. It's very, very cool. It's also very orange. Yes. (laughs) We've got a lot of warm filters throughout this film. Very, yes. But this is all happening within the first four minutes of the movie, so it's establishing its tone and style very quickly. And i that is, to its credit, that's a very good thing, because you want people to know what it is they're getting into right off the bat. Yeah, this movie just feels... You, yeah, you do feel the heat throughout it. One of the things that was not as common to use warm filters on at the time were the night shots. Mm. Night shots often still have a lot of cool filters on them just because people associate the night with non-orange filters. But this film is going to, throughout all of its night shots, still use warm filters and tobacco filters (laughs) over their lenses to really grit that warm orange glow Mm -hmm. throughout so there's yeah the sky throughout this movie looks a little otherworldly in interesting ways another thing they're going to do throughout is they really wanted the cars to pop and be the real characters of visible color across the spectrum and so they tried to narrow down the parts in LA where they were filming that didn't have a lot of color Mm -hmm. that there was a lot of undersaturated color in the backgrounds and they even went as far as to paint some of the background houses white and gray so that just these bright colors of the cars would pop against the landscape so they they committed they committed it works they got it because we're about to see a green car and i don't think since bilbo's door in fellowship of the ring have i ever thought to myself holy shit that is really fucking green yeah, it's, it's greener than The Hobbit, for yeah. <laughs> sure. It is a lime green 1995 Mitsubishi Eclipse that has been 
modded to hell, as it were. <laughs> but it is going to race through this parking lot. We get the 17 seconds of what it feels like to go very, very fast. And the camera is shaking like one of those paint cans mm-hmm. as the car is just like zipping by. It's an impressive sh- shot to get because that speed is real in that one. And apparently it was also one of the first things that they shot for this film was that car racing through Dodger Stadium's parking lot. Eh, you know, set your tone and figure out how you're going to film these cars going really fast. We're actually going to get a lot of crane shots in this movie too, because the camera is going to crane over this parking lot and slowly swoop into the center of the lot. Meanwhile, this lime green car is going to drive into the center of the frame where the camera has stopped. And that's a really cool dynamic way to set up your shot because you've got the crane going one way and stopping right as this car is entering from the other side of the frame and stopping and they meet in the middle. And so there's just so much motion there Mm -hmm. and it's super, super cool. And it also really would have been like a super bitch to mark, right? Because you have to like drive and just stop on your mark. You've got to land just the right spot to do that. You have to mark it right. You have to land the car right. The crane has to hit the spot just the right way. A lot of lot of things have to come together to make this thing happen. And if that wasn't cool enough, then we're actually going to keep the camera creeping and moving, and it's going to push into the windshield of this car. Eventually, we're going to see Paul Walker's face through the windshield, but not before we see this multicolored reflection of the lot that's surrounding this car reflecting off the glass and these very cool, distorted angles. And I'm like, what up, Robert Cohen? Every step of the way, this movie is trying to find a way to make a mundane thing look sexy. It's a scene of a guy driving a car through a parking lot, stops and looks around. That could be accomplished in one steady shot. No problem at all. But here we're saying, no, we have to like make him swing in. We have to come down to meet him. We have to have this texture and refraction of light showing his surroundings showcased for you. And then, then you get to meet your boy, Paul Walker. We get the sense in the setup also that like he kind of sucks at driving comparatively. He's better than most yeah. because he's still taking this car really, really fast, but he can't quite drift the way he wants to, yeah. you know? What are you going to do? He's shifting too much. He shifts like seven times. This car has six speeds. Uh, what? How? How are you doing that? That's just one of the many things I've read about car fans saying like, uh, yeah, cool movie, but this one thing sucks. Actually, Craig Lieberman likes to joke around about that because he has a whole series of videos as well. Yeah, he's on YouTube. On the effects of this film. And he, he worked on this film mm-hmm. as one of their car effects people. And he did kind of tongue-in-cheek, like, oh, I mean, if uh, if we just need it to go a little bit faster, you just shift into that next gear, because you always have more There's gears in Fast and Furious. Gear. They're always there and available for you. you know? <laughs> so, yeah, they're aware. They're aware. Mm-hmm. And cut to Echo Park. What's Echo Park? So Echo Park is a neighborhood in L.A. It's actually where a lot of 
movie studios and filming used to happen before Hollywood hmm. was a thing. So a lot of the areas of Echo Park actually are featured in a lot of movies from the 30s. Oh, interesting. Which also kind of lends a little bit of this, because this film is an interesting blend of 1950s exploitation, sort of teen drag racing movies, and then 1930s westerns. And then we also have these places that are showcased in Echo Park that you see in a lot of movies from the 1930s. So it's a fun, yeah, landscaping thing they're doing here. Cohen also, he didn't exclusively just want to use Echo Park for the retro 30s throwback. He did want to use it for just the feel of L.A. to sort of show a new side to L.A. than people outside of L.A. were really Mm -hmm. thinking about at the time in the 2000s as an area of neighborhoods and small shops and hilly areas since LA is usually thought of as like kind of flat and whatnot. This also, though, outside of the 30s and the Hollywood angle, in the 80s and 90s, Echo Park increasingly were suffering a lot of accelerated gang violence oh. and presence. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually interesting laws in kind of gang law history that got passed in Echo Park that didn't let like two gang members from different associated gangs meet in a space for longer than X number of minutes or something. Oh, wow. Like it was very interesting, like whatever stuff. So that would have been leading up into this 2001 area. So it would have been a little bit of a rougher neighborhood oh. at the time, but has since been like super gentrified oh. and is no longer the space that it was at the time of this filming. Enough of this talk. I want tuna. There's a cafe. Does it have tuna? Yes, there is tuna. No, it's not good tuna. Huh. It's not good tuna at all. Damn it. I thought it was going to be good tuna. Well, have some anyway. Maybe with the crust off. (laughs) So we go into Toretto's market, and we get the name Toretto across its sign, so that's establishing some of our characters, perhaps. So in real life, this is Bob's Market on Bellevue Ave in Echo Park, and it has been around for a very, very long time. I think it was built in like the 1913s or something, like 1913, and it's been a grocery store ever since. What's really cool about this is that it is in multiple movies, like people really like to use this (laughs) building, but it is also the inspiration for the market in Grand Theft Auto V. There's a market called BJ's that is Bob's market as well and (laughs) is just lifted from its design to put in as a reference. Because, yeah, this is a a little iconic spot in L.A. Wow. All right. It's a nice little spot. It's a nice shop. The whole front is open and these lights are still really oppressively warm. Mm -hmm. Joanna Brewster is bent over the counter. As she do. Paul Walker comes in. Hey, Paul. And she already knows his order. So establishing, like, this dude has been around here a lot. And his order is tuna on white bread with the crust cut off. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Not even rye, not even on rye bread, Paul. White bread with the crust cut off. <laughs> and this does relate to the single best line from Roger Ebert's review of this movie, where he says, Jordana Brewster serves tuna salad on white bread, no crust, every day to Brian, Paul Walker, who looks a little bit like white bread, no crust himself. Right? Because, yeah. yeah, I was like, is there more of a direct way to set this dude up as like the whitest, most vanilla motherfucker (laughs) than to have him come into this cafe and sit down and be known as the dude who comes in there every single day to order tuna on white with no crusts. Not even like some mustard to dip it in. Good God, man. Also, I'm like, dude, 
cut off your own crusts. Right? Like, don't make <laughs> you your own booster cut off your crust. Just have her make you a tuna fish sandwich and you can cut off your own damn crust. Jordana, she's working so hard in there. She looks so sweaty, like, all the time. I hope she's okay. She's just sweaty this entire movie. Yeah, that dewy glow. It's pretty great. And, yeah, he's going to be like, is the tuna any good? And she's like, no, bro, it sucks. It always sucks. <laughs> and it's going to continue to suck because look at how hot this environment is. The warm filters on the seat yeah. are so nuts that this is almost like sepia toned because there's just so much orange coming in and the heat <laughs> from the lights and the air outside is like blowing by like this is not the environment that i would just order a tuna fish sandwich in like that just seems the tuna is probably dangerous to eat at this point it's so hot in this place i don't think you want yeah. to you want some whole milk to go with that you're making some bad choices here yeah, but Brian's going to make a bunch of bad choices, so this is in line with his character. Meanwhile, a line of four cars that are all individually brightly primary colored, like they're just like this team of Power Rangers, are going to like wiggle their way through the streets. Mm -hmm. They're all like the same but different mm -hmm. in their own ways, because these are some custom modded cars. Natural. And out comes Dom's crew that are entering this cafe. Sure. And Cohen's quote here was fun when Michelle Rodriguez gets out of the car and then like these three other guys. And he's like, yeah, obviously the three guys combined are hardly the equal of one Michelle Rodriguez. <laughs> and you're like, you know what, Rob Cohen, you're right. Because she just has a presence. Oh, yeah. That yeah. stands out compared to these other three dudes. Mm -hmm. And she goes in to see Dom, who has been in there. We've only seen Dom from the back. So you just get like a little bit of top light on that glorious bald head of Vin Diesel's. One of his crew is going to be a dude named Vince. Mm-hmm. And Vince does not like that Paul Walker is back again because clearly he's not here for the tuna. He's here for Joanna Brewster, JB. Yeah, well, as we'll find out, Vince, he's kind of always right in a strange way. Yeah, I mean, he, he does kind of know what's up, but he's a total asshole about it. So he's yeah. going to go marching in there, and he's going to demonstrate the most menacing way to flick a sugar bowl because he's just going <laughs> to flick the sugar bowl at Paul Walker. <laughs> Like, I, I don't know what the message is there, but uh, it's menacing. Like, whoa, whoa, okay. Walker's going to be like, okay, I get by the fact that you flicked the sugar bowl at me that you don't want me around, so I'm going to bounce. And Vince follows him out and just loses his shit. Really and fast, And they just too. start fighting mm -hmm. in the streets. And apparently, according to Cohen, during this scene, they had choreographed this whole thing, but then Vince and... Paul Walker really wanted to fight. They were like, can we just like kind of grapple and, you know, like just, I don't know, scruffle about with each other. And Cohen's like, yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah, it's aside from the first punch that Paul Walker throws, which is this glorious profile shot and the camera is pushing in on him right as he throws the punch. Everything else is just down and dirty of them, like trying to like scrap and roll around on the ground. It's a, it's a dirty fight. Yeah, and this fight sequence is shot with three handheld cameras all at once since they knew that they were going to be doing this non-choreographed fight in grapple to be able to maintain continuity in editing they just did all three angles at once so that they would all be the same <laughs> that's which is always a luxury cool. to have that have that going so yeah vin diesel comes out and he's like where's your wallet because i need to menacingly just check out your <laughs> name and where you live and his name is going to be listed as brian earl spilner Oh, he's the best. 
And he's like, what the fuck? He's like, sounds like a serial killer name. Is that what you are? And just sort of points at him. I mean, And I'm like, you know, that's a fair point. That does sound like a serial killer I was going to say, you know serial killers uh, far better than I do. Does that sound like a serial killer name? Definitely. Okay. Definitely sounds like Ryan a serial killer Earl name. So Spilner. the okay. stereotype of the serial killer name is always having that middle name included, right? Oh, like something very okay. bland on the first and then a middle name that sounds maybe a little antiquated or a little Southern and then some sort of strange last names. John Wayne Gacy mm-hmm. is sort of a, a good example of that. Yeah, no, Brian Earl Spillner totally sounds like a serial killer name. I'm, I'm with Vin Diesel on this one for sure. Fair enough. And he also just hates his face in general and says, well, you're fired. From what? From Harry's. He's fired from Harry's. What is Harry's? Yeah. What, let's go to Harry's. Yeah, meanwhile at Harry's. At an auto body shop that uh, the building itself is on Orange Drive near Santa Monica Boulevard. It's now a photography studio of some sort, I think called Siren Studios. But Brian walks in, and he does still have a job at this place because the manager, I guess Harry, says like, oh, I can't fire you because, you know, you're a human who shows up on time. So, yeah, you get to stay. The interesting way is like, he's like, well, what did you tell him? Right? He's like, mm-hmm. I told him good help was hard to find. And so it's kind of a cool like preliminary setup for what's going to be the twist. Because right now we don't know that Brian is undercover. It's a little bit interesting here where Brian seems to have a little bit of control in this environment that makes yeah. a lot more sense once there's that sort of reveal. And, and Brian, he needs he needs something in life. Because his car was not doing what he wanted it to. He's upset his car topped out at 140 miles an hour. Like, oh, yeah, I, right? Yeah, That's what just, a joke. Oh, you sick bastard. Only 140 miles an hour. Terrible. Well, he needs that good, that good stuff. That nitrous oxide, that NOS. And as he says, yeah, I need NOS. NOS. And I always laugh because there are a bunch of signs and you've probably have seen these in the past somewhere, where it's NOS, and the N has a big arrow coming off of it that points to the right. And Paul Walker immediately walks to the left. And I, every time I see that, I think, no, the NOS is over there, man. You're going the wrong way. What are you, what are you doing there? And I do like that, yeah, there are these big signs above his head that just say NOS as it dawns on little Brian, I need NOS. And you're like, are you that susceptible to the subliminal, (laughs) not so subliminal advertising that's happening behind you, buddy? But it is kind of nice because for a non-car person, it does at least establish that NOS is a thing in like this car world and that he's not like having a stroke right now when he just is like, I need NOS. You're like, the fuck is that? Like, well, that's a nonsense word. If I ever heard, oh, that's a thing. Okay. And they go back It's a thing. Like, it's definitely apparently a thing that requires like bumper stickers and posters. And Harry is, Harry's just stressed out by everything. And as soon as Brian says, I need NOS, he's like, no, you can't. That's, oh no, that's too much. Those cans are too big. Yeah, they are too big. I'll need two of them. Amateurs don't use NOS, so I'm like, oh, he's calling Paul Walker here an amateur. Like, shit, bro. Shit. Damn. So, NOS. Yeah. The fuck is NOS? I'm so glad you asked. It is nitrous oxide, and so it is a gas, and that usually comes in kind of these cylinder tanks. And here's a very mini little boiled down lesson on NOS, since we're not going to get too technical on this. But the thing is, is that Gas needs oxygen to burn. And your cylinder in your car is only so big and can only get so much oxygen in to where the fuel is and the engine and whatnot. Now, 
unless you force more oxygen in there is option one, which is why we have things like turbochargers. But if you also want to do something a little bit more subtle, what might be considered sneaking in more oxygen Mm -hmm. alongside the force, because often these are not mutually exclusive. You can have turbochargers and some NOS. They do that. But you take some of this nitrous oxide. Sure. And what that allows you to do, actually, is that it is a combination of nitrogen and oxygen, and they are bonded together until they heat to a certain degree. And once they heat to that degree, they split into two separate things. Mm -hmm. Thus, what's nice about that is that it takes until it actually gets to where the fuel is and whatnot. It's already kind of mixed in with the fuel by the time that the nitrogen and the oxygen split from each other. And so then oxygen is kind of delivered and it helps like spark and Mm -hmm. speed up. Because yeah, if you give your gas more oxygen, it's going to burn hotter. It's going to give you more of that horsepower. Why you don't just kind of pump direct oxygen in without the nitrogen (laughs) is because like the nitrogen, like I said, it helps actually kind of get it further along the piping until it's where it needs to be. If you just thread in oxygen by itself, like that's when shit explodes, Um, which apparently there was a dude named Barney Navarro who was a racer in the 1950s. And he was the one who first experimented with pushing straight oxygen into his engine. Did not work out so well. So that was a oh shit moment. But nitrous oxide was discovered in 1970, or sorry, 1772 by Joseph Priestley. It didn't do anything but make people giggle. And and we all need things to laugh about at the time, you know? Yeah, it was mostly used as like a party drug in the Ooh, 1700s and 1800s until World War II, where mm-hmm. it was actually used to boost planes and plane engines during World War II. And so that was actually where it started mm-hmm. being used in engine stuff and where car culture in the 1950s began to integrate it into their own engines but yeah if you snake this nos in to your engine there are different ways to do it once again won't get into the difference between dry injections and wet injections like people either know that and care or they don't but if you want to know more look up dry injection versus wet injection nos because it's kind of cool you know goddamn well i do it can kind of bump up your speed 50 to even like 300 horsepower. All right. So it gives you like this burst of speed. And mm-hmm. as we go to the races later, I will talk about when to actually set off your NOS versus not. But mm-hmm. yeah, the, the core of NOS as to why people use it and what it does is it's just a little bump. You need to know when to NOS and when to not NOS. Yes. Not NOS is bad. To nos or not to nos, yeah. always the question. Yeah, all the time. Actually, apparently never a question, because you always nos. Fuck, I want to nos right now. Hey, I have some. Nice. Right. What's also fun about this scene, as oh, they're walking through, good. is where we really get some more of the technical camera stuff. So watch this scene, mm-hmm. and weird things are happening, because these two actors are on the move, and they keep walking in a way in which, like, a bunch of stuff is going to be between them and the camera. So as they're moving, the camera's moving with it, and we're getting all of this mess in between. A lot of vertical slats of stuff, a lot of signs, a lot of cars. And that was actually also very deliberate. There are even times you can pause and 
the actors' faces are only a fourth in the frame because mm -hmm. they're behind a pole <laughs> or something. It's very yeah. bizarre. And yet this is on purpose because they wanted to film and get and edit all sorts of angles and actions to try to capture the speed of things. And so all of the walk and talk scenes are shot the same way as the race scenes where the camera is constantly in motion and all kinds of tracking shots are happening and all of these vertical things that are in front of the frame allow you to feel the speed that it's going right because that actually helps you visually track with how fast each of that vertical yeah. slat or disruption is coming actually helps your mind gauge the speed and that's really cool because it does make it just seem constantly in motion this could have just been a a locked off two shot just two people talking let us know what's going on advance the plot rob cohen says no -uh, none of that we're gonna put some shit between them and us and the camera and we're gonna move all around and it's gonna be fucking exciting and it is and it works very well yeah. and keeps that energy going like i said is the best thing about this movie even in a dull pointless scene like this we're still just gonna know like fuck yeah man we are moving here yeah, if you speed up this frame rate fast enough, it actually starts looking like a barcode because there's just so many direct, like, full frame vertical shots that are solid and then the stuff behind it. So, yeah, if you go fast enough, that's what the kind of stuff we're talking about is like that barcode movement. Super cool. Mm. Not done very often, but when it's done here, it is done effectively. All right. We have the NOS. Now, what do we do with it? We got a race. We got a fucking time. race. Get that eclipse out, go to the race. Throw a pink slip out, whatever. It's going to be a good time. But yes, we head out to some very old warehouses where a lot of people have gathered. These giant warehouses in downtown L.A. that nowadays are American apparel factories. Like we said, some gentrification happened around here. Uh, American apparel. I miss American apparel. <laughs> American uh, apparel is great. It doesn't miss you, though. Everything misses me when I'm not around. Every shot I take. But yes, we've got these giant warehouses on either side. Apparently, the streets in between were at the time the produce market in L.A. that was not being used at night. So mm -hmm. they were able to clear the streets. Cohen did want to evoke, once again, that 1950s teen movie feeling of mm -hmm. something like West Side Story, where everyone's just hanging out in these groups outside of these giant brick buildings in an alley. Because one of the things that Cohen really, really fell in love with, with the street racing scene, was all of the people that would show up and the multicultural aspect of the street scene. Because we've got a lot of different representations of people of color, of different ethnicities, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and he noted that all of them would come together. And at this point in LA, where a lot of the assumption was that these groups of people would not get along with one another, you know, in kind of like gang street related mm -hmm. affiliations, this was the one area in which he found that with cars and different kind of groups, the cars were what mattered. And it sort of rose everybody to the same language of just really appreciating the make and the model of the cars and the speed. And he really wanted to show and demonstrate this mm -hmm. unity that happened in this multicultural way in the street scene. And so we've got just like a full spread of people that show up. Like Ja Rule. Like Ja Rule. <laughs> ja Rule is going to be there for sure. He's like, hey, hey, it's Ja Rule. What's up? I remember like the, the first time I saw this, I, I didn't really know who Ja Rule was at the time because I was completely illiterate when it came to music. 
And everyone just says, yeah, Ja Rule. And I said, uh, yeah, it is. It is Ja Rule. Yeah, Tim. Hooray. He was like, I know Weird Al Yankovic. And that's it, guys. That's it. Hey, how don't you dare. Ways. Don't you dare talk about Weird Al like that, okay? Forgive me for being alive in the 90s and having two ears connected to a heart. Uh-huh. Ja Rule is there, and Ja Rule is going to provide music for the soundtrack. And how they are able to get his song for the soundtrack is to give him a momentary role in this film, which is not in the screenplay. It is not in the storyboarding. (laughs) It was improvised later when they brought him in. Cohen and Ja Rule together came up with this little mini arc for Ja Rule's character, which is that he wasn't racing for pink slips he wasn't racing for money or glory he was racing for a (laughs) three-way racing for the hope of touching upwards of three boobs that night and then uh, brian is also approached by hector hector is gonna see walker pull up in his really bright green car and park (laughs) it and his car just sticks out and they all kind of look at him like they're recoiling from his dumb car except for his car isn't actually a bad car in the racing scene, so I'm not really sure what this reaction is or if it's just that it's Paul Walker driving it. It's just painfully white. Hector is going to look over and he's going to call him Snowman, and it's a great <laughs> nickname for uh. Paul Walker. Because <laughs> once again, this is like the white bread, no crust, tuna fish eating like snowman motherfucker. So he's, he's showing up. Hector's going to come over and he's going to say, I'm not racing tonight because I'm trying to go legit. So let's talk about Hector going legit here for a second. What does that mean, going legit in the world of street racing? Yeah, so, well, there is no going legit specifically in street racing, because street racing is specifically the term for the illicit, illegal Mm -hmm. forms of racing that happen on the street. Sure. And then that compares to drag racing, which is generally the legally sanctioned organized events. So what he wants to do is he wants to get out of street racing and go into more of the professional circuit or in legally sanctioned events that are at race tracks and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And he mentions that he wants to get on the Naira circuit. Now, as far as I know, no Naira circuit exists. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a thing that was invented for the movie. However, there was a car person that posited that there is something that is an HRA instead of NIRA. And NHRA is the National Hot Rod Association. So their speculation was that it might not be a super stretch to say that the NIRA would be like the National Import Racing Association instead of like Hot Rod. Because especially at this time, imports were a much more popular car than like the American muscle cars Mm -hmm. to race. Sure. The Japanese imports Mm -hmm. were seeing their heyday in the American and Canadian street racing scene, which would contrast to like the 1950s and 60s racing circuit, which were mostly about like these muscle cars that Diesel still drives. Obviously, they had to outlaw the Canadian muscle cars, which, you know, won every time and just wasn't fair. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Now, everyone's going to approach Brian, right? And somebody's going to ask him, like, this yours? And Brian's like, yeah, I'm standing next to it. It's like, sit, come back, bro. Oh, well. God damn, And then they're going to tell him. It's not how you stand next to your car. It's how you drive your car. I'm like, word. Well, that's a little bit of how you yeah. stand next to it, because... Uh, yeah, aesthetics are important. Yeah. Whatever. Come on now. <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez is going to show up. 
she sluts shame some chicks, which is kind of uncool. But Brian, he's here to race, but he doesn't have any money. So he offers up his ass. Well, that's on the line, too, for sure. Sorry, I was reading but the slash earlier. My bad. I was thinking about something else. He's going to offer up the pinks, the pink slips to his car, where, yeah, if I lose, you take my car. But if I win, I take the cash and the respect. <gasps> and everyone's like, the respect? respect? Oh, my God. Why does he want the respect? Well, it's, that's way more important than the cash. It's respect, London. And he's like, to some people, that's more important. Yeah. That gets Dom's attention, because Dom, Vin Diesel's character, he, like, looks over, and he's like, whoa, that's deep, bro. Like, you can see it in his eyes. Yeah. He's thinking, like, wait, I think that, too. You may have just won me over a little bit, because it is all about respect. Mm. He's taking notice. And so then they pop open the hood of Brian's car. He's got about 10 grand worth of car jargon under the hood. Oh, is that all? Plus enough NOS to blow himself up. And so, yeah, he's in, you know? Oh, okay. Apparently with the pink slips, though, this is something that they're going to do a lot in Fast and the Furious. Like, throughout (laughs) the franchise, they're going to race for slips. And this is something that apparently, although can be done in the street racing scene, is something that's almost never done. Uh, Because the cars to... (laughs) Street racers in street racing culture are, like, very important. It's an extension of their identity. They're basically, like, their children, right? Mm -hmm. They've put a lot of time and energy and investment into them. Like, you're not offering up your car in a race. So they close down the street. They fuck over a pizza delivery boy. So we get Pizza Hut product placement and director cameo all at the same time because the pizza guy is played by Robert Cameo and Robert (laughs) Robert Cohen. And he's playing some sad old man who has to do pizza runs this late in his life. It's, you know, delivering the pizza. Oh, where's that spinoff movie? Forget Hobbs and Shaw. I want to know about old pizza guy. Yeah, that's that's another spinoff that we can get, like the short story of that dude's night and his alternative route that he had to take to deliver those pizzas. So these street racers that are going to be about, what we're seeing here is actually a pretty great like setup of a street race. They're going to have all of their little police scanners and they're waiting until the police are occupied with other stuff. This is apparently something that does very much happen. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Yeah, because you, like, have the scanners in the area, so you wait until the police are, like, away. And we even get some guy that yells, oh, we got a 187, which is the code for murder or something. So, like, the cops are going to go over there for a little while. Mm -hmm. So we have a moment that we can race under the radar. We're going to pull up four cars. Four cars, you say? And another amazing shot. Mm -hmm. Technically, apparently, normal street racing is generally two at a time. And Robert Cohen acknowledged this in the commentary. He's like, sometimes I've seen three. I've never seen four at once. But it just looks so much fun and more interesting with four. So we just decided to do it with four. Real is nice, but interesting is more fun. Yeah, this is like a film Mm -hmm. over science moment, right? Or film over fact. And... We are going to pull these four cars up, and the camera is going to start on the line of the street. Yeah. And it's slowly dollying back as each car is just going to come up and halt right on the line, one after another. And it's doing this great job of just establishing these cars as the characters. And it's a very cool angled shot. Once again, this camera is still going to be in motion, right? It's pulling out, and cars are just driving into the frame. And they're lining up right on their mark. 
And then fourth is going to come this lime green front bumper that's going to come into this frame and then it's going to drive right past it. Yeah, so that we've been so set up to just see like halt, 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 and then like a little bit more that it's extra jarring that suddenly we just see like the middle of the car. Of course, it is newbie Brian because Brian's such a noob at this Ugh. and it's amazingly awkward. But he's trying to psych himself up like, you're going to win. Yeah, you're you're gonna win. Yeah, you're gonna do it. It's a little self pep talk. I got ten thousand dollars of jargon underneath my hood. I'm I'm good. I'm good. This is gonna be great. And he's gonna awkwardly back up to his yeah. starting line. And my other favorite shot of just straight through all four windows, starting with Brian's side, as all the other three drivers just turn and look at him like, what an asshole. Uh, it's super great. It's just a, a moment of pure affect. And one of the guys, so we're going to have Ja Rule, we're going to have Vin Diesel, and then we're going to have this dude in the middle who was one of the top LA street racers at the time that is going <laughs> to be sitting in his car playing his video game in his actual racing car. And so he's going to be the fourth racer that races them. Yeah. And it's going to be cute because later that. when they're both going, one of the best street racers in LA is going to get the line like, wow, he's fast. <laughs> and so it's kind of cute. He delivers it very believably. You know, I believe yeah. that he thought that the other guy was fast. Like, yeah, right. This guy. Yeah. So that's a little cameo for the street scene in LA. I love that he's, he's like playing a video game to get ready. Like that's his warm up. It looks like Gran Turismo. That was a, mm-hmm. for a racing game for the PlayStation 1. I played a few times back in the day. Yeah, he just has it hooked up in his car. I would. So he's here, and we're going to have the race. This race. This race is exhilarating. <sighs> it is some great All right. digital filmmaking here. This race right here. So from the moment that Hector says go, for them to go, and Dom crossing the finish line, it is two minutes five seconds, five frames, 24 frames a second. So that's the exact amount of time. And in that time span, we have 73 different cuts. The length of shots will range from 10 seconds to four frames of footage. And there is so goddamn much going on here. The moment that Hector says go, we then CGI ourselves into Dom's car for ignition. And we hear this sound. A sound technician spent a week creating those nine seconds of sound. There are so many sounds thrown into this. The most shocking thing to me was that this guy says he recorded an old Buick revving up for the sake of that. So (laughs) not the sound sources you would think you're going to get in this, but there they are all the same. And they begin to take off. And what I fascinated me, about the editing in this is that the shots will get to a certain length and then we have several different shots of them going into the next gear up and then it's the very quick shots again and then the shots slowly get longer as they maintain that gear and then suddenly quick cuts again as they're shifting gears it was fascinating to really dissect like each individual shot in this racing sequence at the one minute mark is when Brian releases his first canister of nitrous. And then we get the bits that this film is probably most known for, which is the trance 
nitrous effect when the cars are now going into hyperspace and the world begins to melt away. I couldn't really find any good information on what the actual effect here is. I have to assume that Paul Walker and everyone who's driving, they are in their cars, the cars are on a set on a green screen, and then effects plates of street footage are put around them, but that footage is being digitally warped around them and oversaturated to create some light trail effects. And as it moves along, the streets are just going so absurdly fast that a few times on side shots, we're just seeing hyperspace around them, just straight line blurs as they are speeding along. And it is by far the most effective scene in the entire film to create that hyper energy that Rob Cohen was trying to get across. And it's probably one of the most amazing examples of coherent hyper editing I've ever seen in a film. Agreed. Like this scene <laughs> is so exhilarating on a technical level. God damn. It holds up too, yeah. since there's so much digital stuff in it and it's 2001. Yeah. You would think going back that it would be really awkwardly CGI and it's not. It's beautiful. And that is because of, yeah, the seamless blending of what is, indeed, I can confirm that they were, the actors themselves inside their cars were stationary on a set okay. surrounded yes. by the digital screen. And that in and of itself is a little impressive in a weird way that they really are reacting to the movement physically in their embodied mm -hmm. performances where they're kind of like looking behind their shoulder or whatnot or the speed is making them breathe harder and faster. And so it's fun that they're sitting stationary in a car. Yeah. Cohen did mention that he's like, okay, so we needed to figure out how do we visually capture speed? Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to think about. Like, how do we do this? And so rapid edits or interesting pacing with the edits is certainly going to be one thing, that interval where it's longer and more rapid in some. And then he's like, we started to think about it as a sci-fi movie. And so that hyper speed, hyper warp transition mm -hmm. was something that they deliberately were trying to evoke was this idea that we're going to just take this almost to the sci-fi place where they are going into just like warp speed inside of their little vehicles. The other fun, crazy, mind-blowing thing about this in the physical reality is that this race that is, yeah, like two minutes and something seconds in the film is actually like a 10 to 11 second race. Mm -hmm. So he was also saying, how do we take 10 seconds and spread it out in this kind of weird time collapse moment? We're seeing the racers because what it would have felt like otherwise is earlier in the film where we see that 17 second run of the Nissan in the Dodger Stadium parking lot sure. where it's just going really, really fast. You can't really embody that speed in 10 seconds. So it's like, we got to slow it down. We got to do this weird thing. And because the outside around them is so blurred that it does just kind of seem like we're going slow-mo, but fast at the same time. It's super cool. It's yeah. super exhilarating. This is also where we get into this, like, when you set off your NOS kind of stuff. 
and what happens if you give too much to your engine because Brian is going to use both of his little NOS buttons mm. and it's going to strain his car. Like his car is not built there, for that there's much. There's a danger to the manifold. The computer tells us so that there's <laughs> a danger to the manifold, which when I was looking up stuff about Craig Lieberman, he mentions that was the one thing he cringed at the most whenever he saw the movie. He just thought, that's so ridiculous. Why would the manifold be in danger? His thought was that instead you should just have some sort of dial that has a red marker and the needle hits that. He thinks to himself, I mean, any audience knows if the dial is hitting red, that's bad news. And then maybe the nitrous is escaping into the windows and fogging things up, and that's fucking with Brian. And apparently Rob Cohen, you know, listened to him, took that in and just says, yeah, but we're going to do the manifold thing instead. I don't think the audience will care all that much. So, well, there <laughs> Which you some go. do, some don't. He does lose the floor of the thing. The passenger side floor apparently just collapses and sparks fly everywhere inside the vehicle and that flies off. But uh, that'll happen if you overdo yeah. your notches. Yeah, the bolts get shaked a little bit loose and the sparks mm. sort of fly and whatnot. Once again, this is happening within a 10 second time frame. Yeah. So when you're actually racing in like over two minutes, right, then it can seem like, well, you have all the time in the world to think about when is the most advantageous time to push that NOS button. But when you're actually collapsing that time to a handful of seconds, that's actually interesting. And there's yeah. a whole bunch of debate on when you should push your NOS versus not, but most consensus is towards the end right. because of different acceleration factors and whatnot. But it's weird to think that this is all happening very, very, very quickly. Like it's a quarter mile. So that's what when he's going to later talk about a 10 second car that's mm -hmm. this idealized vocab of a car that can do that kind of like, you know, quarter mile in 10 seconds. Yeah, it is funny to break it down. Like if you take this literally that they for two minutes have been driving at about 140 miles an hour, well, they should be somewhere in the Pacific Ocean by this point because they've covered nearly eight or 10 miles going at that speed. But I like it more that you can perceive this as something much like your life slows down. Your life is flashing before your eyes in a very intense situation. Not really life flashing. It's more like this hyper-focus. Yeah, hyper-focus. Or, you know, the stories you hear about people who fall from great heights and they think that, not to go too dark here, but often survivors will report a feeling of everything slowing down around them as if it's taking way longer than it should to reach the bottom and maybe just that intensity is what Brian and everyone else could be experiencing every single time that they do this. That's why Dom is so obsessed with it. Just to him, those 10 seconds of freedom feel like two minutes of freedom. Yeah, it's the adrenaline and the hyper-focus that yeah. is part of this addiction or whatnot. And Cohen also talks about how in this moment, by the end of this race, they wanted to show that Brian's life had been changed in that 10 seconds. Yeah. He is elated by this experience. He's got the adrenaline, the endorphins, everything is pumping and happening. And so he's really ecstatic when he just jumps out of his car at the end, even though he's going to lose because, yeah. yeah, Dom is, he's got a better car. He's a better yeah. driver. He and just knows. he's still going to pop out and be like, I almost had you. <laughs> He's so excited about it. Right. He's he's grinning ear to ear. But you know, Dom lays out the truth speed. and says, "You almost had me. You never had me." Oh, I'll stop. I'm sorry. That was that's Please do. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, <laughs> he gives his "You almost had me. You never had me" speech. 
and they're going to proceed to shop talk, trash talk. I know. And I always wonder, he says, look at you over here, granny shifting when you should be double clutching. I was curious, what the hell is granny shifting and double clutching? I looked it up. Granny shifting is just shifting. If you ever drive a car with a manual transmission or driving stick, you have the clutch, which is the third pedal in there. And when it's time to shift, you take your foot off the gas, you put the other foot on the clutch, you change the gear, take your foot off the clutch, put it back onto the you know accelerator. And people who are used to driving stick can do that almost instantaneously. Double clutching, on the other hand, as opposed to granny shifting, is an extra step in this. Double clutching is when you're ready to go to another gear, so you put your foot on the clutch, put the stick onto neutral, foot goes off the clutch, you then wait for the car to reach the RPM that you want to, foot goes back on the clutch, you then go from neutral to the gear that you want to. And it doesn't really make much sense to talk about that in street racing, because apparently it's something you only really do when you're shifting down, which you're not going to do in a 10-second acceleration contest. Which seems weird, then, that that line would be in there, since they're on set with a bunch of street racers. Yeah. That are cheering them on. Because the script was very, very detailed researched by the community and it was partially written by people in the street racing community. Though Craig Lieberman has said that there were many times he gave Rob Cohen some rewritten bits of dialogue and sometimes Rob Cohen would take a little bit of that and other times he would just say, no, no, this sounds cooler. We're going to do that instead. So, (laughs) yeah, not not accurate all the time. But look, there's no time to talk about double clutching, London. You know why? Because the goddamn cops are coming! Yeah, the cops are on the way, <laughs> and, and everyone's going to bounce. And I'm like, good thing their cars are so inconspicuous in general traffic, because <laughs> there are all these like neon cars yeah. with like, logos all over them. But it's but also our- a good thing that these cats know how to drive. Yeah, so the really cool thing that we haven't fully set up yet is the fact that throughout this scene, we're going to have a whole bunch of extras. Um, there are going to be a whole bunch of people in these scenes that are spectators, that have their cars there, they're watching the race. And the coolest thing that this film does is that they use the actual L.A. street racing community in all of the scenes where there are (laughs) street racing extras. So those who were already a part of the scene or friends with people who are in the scene, the consultants, whatever, they got the people to come out and just be there and bring their own cars. Mm Mm-hmm. This is going to do a lot of wonders for their budget because then they don't actually have to invest in producing a whole bunch of street racing cars because a lot of these kids came with their own cars. And so the people that we see in the background, yeah, and all of their cars, that's going to be the L.A. street racing community in 2001. And they're going to be cheering on Vin Diesel as he gives his speech. And as the cops come... They are all going to get in their cars, and they are going to start peeling out into traffic. Mm -hmm. Fun thing is that Cohen, thinking like, okay, these kids, they have their cars. Why not just use them for the stunts as well? So he went to the driver coordinator and was like, all right, we're going to use these kids for this (laughs) cop coming scene. And the stunt coordinator's like, really? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And apparently they did 10 takes of this police escape exodus, and... Those are indeed all of the drivers are the legit street racing guys in yeah. their own cars. And that in all of those 10 takes, there was not a single fender bender or accident whatsoever. And 
Ken was like, these kids can fucking drive. <laughs> like, it was awesome. But it was some of the most seamless car stunt coordinating that he dealt with because, yeah, these kids could just, you know, like park and pull out and pay attention to their surroundings. And so, and they also were very used to this exact moment yeah. of like cops are coming your cars are parked up in this way like how do you best exit and so basically all he had to do is like okay cops are coming go and yeah. like they did their thing like yeah right? we, we know how to do that because we do that all the damn time it's cool rob don't yeah. worry we got so you it's like you do you so these are the moments where it becomes like yeah that ethnographic documentary look at like this is the street racing scene and how they pull away when yeah. cops are coming and it's very cool we're gonna get a lot of aerial shots of it we're gonna get it covered from lots of directions and it's uh, lovingly watches this exodus. Damn straight. And Dom gets out of there himself, parks the, I believe his car is called a Mazda RX-7. I could be wrong on that. But he parks his car in a garage, leaves it there, walks out because he's a smooth motherfucker, gets out onto the streets. Cops are going by and apparently they recognize that bald head anywhere and just say, you there, Toretto, you need to stop. And he begins to run away and he might get caught, but oh no. Who's there to rescue him? Our boy, that white tuna snowman motherfucker himself. Brian is there on the scene. And luckily, his, you know, the passenger side floor fell out. Brian had a spare. It's cool. Dom hops in. I hope he had a spare because otherwise Dom is doing some Fred Flintstone shit this entire ride. And that can't be good. But they haul ass out of there. And thank God they got away from the cops. And... Dom lets him know, like, yeah, Brian, uh, you, you drive like you've done this a few times. Oh, no, no, I've never done this before. Oh, really? You didn't spend some time in juvie? Ah, oh, darn it all. He knows that? Yeah, I know that. I looked you up because the internet has information on it. Yeah, he's like, I got an internet guy. He can find anything on anyone. On the internet. They have to... Re- <laughs> yeah, he knows how to use that browser. 2001 was a time where you had to remind your audience. The the internet is a thing that has information on people on it. Nowadays, you would just say, yeah, I Googled you. You were in juvie. And your audience would just say, oh, yeah, he looked up information. I'm like, obvious. So apparently, Brian Earl Spilner is registered as having done time in Tucson in juvie for boosting cars. Tucson. And Vince oh. shares... That I too have served some prison time, two years in Lompoc, which is a area in Santa Barbara. Oh, okay. And they do have a federal correctional complex up there that has both medium and low security prisons. So there's a couple of different prisons that are part of the system. So I don't know which one he was in specifically, but apparently he's from Santa Barbara. Yep. And. He doesn't want to go back. He never wants to go back. He'd I'll rather die. die before I go back. Ride or die, man. Ride Prison's not an option. Ten seconds. And then this Family. car is going to continue to run away from the cops, and it's going to jump in the air a little bit. And <laughs> oh, I liked really? the code in the commentary. It was like, what made that car jump there? I don't know. I just wanted it to jump there, so we put a couple of jump ramps in. Called it good. Yep. And it, it is an important little visual, you know, like it's, moment. It's a fun time. But you know what's not a fun time? is the motorcycle guys from John Wick 3, which is essentially what shows up now, because they are now trailed by a bunch of guys on motorcycles. One of them pulls up to the driver's side, points a gun at Brian and says, yeah, you need to follow us. We have words for you. And so they pull into this beautiful Asian gateway, which in real life is Little Saigon uh, in Wellington, outside of Los Angeles, which is about... 50 miles away from where they were, so Brian really hauled some ass to get away from the cops there. Good on him, yeah. but a little excessive. And he really shouldn't have done that. He just that. ran and kept on running. 
Yeah. He shouldn't have done that, though, because Dom is supposed to stay away from this area. Yeah, because this area is run by this South Vietnamese gang headed by Rick Yoon, who's Korean, but whatever, I guess. He's also super hot. I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> super <Yeah>. hot. <laughs> it was like, you, you beautiful man, just... Just pretend to be that, man. It's it's cool. Yeah, Rick Hughes can be whatever he wants to be, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. He was in Die Another Day, right? He's the guy with the diamonds in his face. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. hot there, too. <laughs> so he's going to show up with, like, this crew, this motorcycle crew. One of them are wearing these, like, snakeskin pants, and they stand <laughs> out. And I was like, oh, my God, snakeskin pants. And then Vin Diesel's going to notice these, too, because he's also going to point out it's like, oh, the dude in the snakeskin pants. I'm like, yeah, you and me, Vin Diesel, we notice the important things. <laughs> this guy's pants are, are awesome. Choices, great choices are being made. Uh. And this motorcycle unit are upset that these guys are on their turf. And How dare they? Dom tries to explain, like, look, Brian's like a goddamn noob and... What are you going to do? I mean, look you at know? this guy. Come on. Look at how stupid he is. Look at him. And they're like, all right, we'll let you go then. Because, yeah. you know, he is a goddamn noob. But then as they drive away, it's like, psych. Nope, we're not going <laughs> to let you go. We're going to shoot up your car instead. So they just start just like unloading yep. all of these bullets on this lime green 1995 Eclipse. Oh, so sad. Luckily, like, they're out of the car already, so they kind of, like, take some steps back. There's flames going, and then Dom shouts out, NOS! Which, Brian, he's like, oh, right, I, that's, I do have nitrous oxide in there. Thank you, I forgot about that. Jeez, it's just one of those days. Yeah, like, we should probably back things. away further as this car blows up. It's going to have the pyrotechnic effects by Matt Sweeney it's and like, co., which is kind of nice. And then... Glorious blue flame everywhere. <laughs> Kevin in the commentary is going to remark that he remembers sitting in the theater for the initial run and all of these kids just like banging their heads on the seat when this eclipse got shot and then blown up. <laughs> and that at the time of doing the commentary, he apparently had this 14-year-old son. He's like, my 14-year-old my son still won't talk to me because I ruined <laughs> that beautiful car. But they decide, okay, let's walk out of there. Brian asks, what was that all about? It's a long story. Bad business and I slept with his sister. Okay. I see why he hates you. That's just not a long story, but whatever. But they cab it back to Dom's place, which is the first time we've seen his house. This is an actual house on East Kensington Street, also in Echo Park. And I looked it up. This house would probably be about less than a mile away from Bob's Diner, where they had the market set. So it actually, the Bob's geography market. yeah, works out really well there. Like, oh, yeah, they just they work at this market that's 0.2 miles away from them. Good on them. It's about 50 miles away from Little Saigon, so that had to be some fucking killer cab fare they just paid. Yeah, Cohen also acknowledges that in the commentary, actually. He's oh, yeah. like, yeah, expensive is what cab fare, but what are you going to do, right? Like the <laughs> Car just blew up. Well, shoot. The dudes, yeah, like blew up their car. We gotta get home somehow. Walk 50 miles? Not likely. And they hop out. Dom walks, sees Brian walking away a little bit. He says, no, no, come on in here, man. And I, I have to think that was Brian's game because, again, we find out later on he's an undercover cop. He wants to get to know you know, what Dom is up to. So he's just hoping. He's playing that long game. Where he's like, I'm hoping that this guy is going to invite me in because I did save his ass. And invite him in, he does, to this lovely little party that's going on here. Dom is rightly a little annoyed that everyone is here partying and no one was wondering, hey, what happened to Dom after that police raid? 
Should we check on that? Should we do anything about it? No, let's just, let's party. Yeah, they're going to have a leather pants house party. So many leather pants. Dom is going to be pissed at his crew or whatnot. And Michelle Rodriguez is there. She's DTS. She has demands. Oh, many demands. Dama offers Brian a Corona. He offers him, he takes, gives him Vince's Corona. Well, it's like a power move, right? Where, like, he's like, Vince, you didn't have my back. Brian had my back, so I'm going to take your beer, and I am going to give it to this new dude right here. Mm -hmm. And Brian's going to take the bottom of his shirt and make (laughs) eye contact with Vince as he, like, wipes off the lip of this beer and then takes a swig. And it's kind of effective in this, like, dickish power move way. Uh, Super effective. Pretty badass. Uh, Mia comes in, sees Brian, says, yeah, let's go get a drink. And by drink, she means a Snapple iced tea because she parties hard that way. That's how it goes. Yeah. And uh, she's like, yeah, you fucking smell horrible. Let me give you a lift home so you can shower that shit off. Yeah, Georgiana Brewster, she's feeling Paul Walker's tuna fish snowman (laughs) energy. But... She's going to give him a lift home. Next day, Brian gets picked up by the cops. Oh. And that's when you find out, like, oh, shit, this motherfucker's undercover. Dun, He's been dun, lying dun. to Dom and his crew. Have yeah. you no decency, sir? Have you no code? Uh, the cops are going to take him Yes. to this goddamn glorious house. Yeah, this awesome house that was made for Elizabeth Taylor. That's so cool. Like, right? That's... Yeah, it wasn't, though. Oh. That's, like, the really odd thing in this script yeah. is that... Brian's going to be taken to this house, and they're going to set this up as a house that was recently seized in one of the police raids, and thus is acting as a base for this Panasonic highway bandit operation. And the supervisor is going to mention, yeah, isn't this house great? It was built by Eddie Fisher for Elizabeth Taylor in the 1950s. And none of that is true. I don't know where they got that from in the screenplay, but like whatever. In Roger Ebert's review, he mentions this weird line. He says, I don't know if that's true, but why would they say that if it wasn't an actual fact? At either rate, this is another great example of Rob Cohen finding ways to make mundane things look really cool. Because in any other movie, this is just Brian gets taken to the police station and talks to the chief or whatever in your typical police room. Or office, and it's boring as hell. Not this movie, though. This movie, we're going to go to this badass house that has a really cool pool and a bridge over the pool. I want that bridge, and I want that pool. Those look so cool. Yeah, so this house wasn't even around in the 1950s. In actuality, it was built in 1963 by architect David Fowler for his mother. For his mother? And ruin the yeah, magic. Yeah, so no Taylor Fisher connection whatsoever. Uh, this house was one story, but was 5,444 square feet. It had 22 nice. rooms. Uh, it was beautiful. It was kind of an oval shape. Like, it was very cool. Um, had lots of windows all around looking over LA because it was kind of built up on this hill. Beautiful property. Amazing demonstration of mid-century architectural design. Horrifically demolished in 2005, oh, damn it. four years after this movie. We just can't have nice things. I know. It, like, it just destroys my soul a little bit to like oh. think about this property. Like, L.A. fought really hard to preserve it as like a historical, important mm-hmm. building. It's going to be in a bunch of other movies, actually, because it is this beautiful piece of property. But then, goddamn, Anthony... Pritzker, who is one of the heirs to the Hyatt Hotel fortune. More like pricked, He's going to huh? buy this right? property, he's going to demolish it, and he's going to build an insanely huge mansion over the area. 
But yes, it is a nice twist, though, that Brian is undercover. It adds a certain interesting extra tension to the narrative, because suddenly it's not just about a new guy coming into the car racing scene and having to prove himself. It becomes this entire tension of lies and deceit and morality. Yeah, pretty much. Then the cops tell him, look, man, these truckers keep getting robbed. The truckers might be arming themselves, which would get really dangerous. So we don't want that to happen. And it's probably street racers doing it. And this Toretto family really has no source of income other than a market stand that sells shitty tuna. So we're thinking it might be them. Look into that. We are going to reiterate here in this scene that the suspects drive three Honda Civics, Precision Driving, Neon Glow, Mm -hmm. and Mashimoto ZX tires. So these are clearly some street racers is what they've deduced because of these mods that are happening with this car. Now, Brian returns to Dom now that we know that he's an undercover cop, and he brings him this shitty, like, burnt-to-fuck car because (laughs) he had raced his earlier car for pink slips. Yeah. And so he owes Dom a 10 second car. He's like, hey, this car doesn't look like much right now, but it has promise under its hood. And I'm like, metaphors. Oh. Brian, yeah. nice. I know. The first time I saw this, I remember just thinking, is he bringing him the car that blew up? What is he doing here? But no, the car is shit, but underneath the hood, the engine is intact. So they can mod it if they want to. And mod it, they shall. Yeah, and this is actually another one of my favorite setups that we kind of brush by during the party scene after this green Mitsubishi has already blown up and they've had this night together. Dom is going to look over the railing and say, you still owe me a 10 second car. That seems like a throwaway line there for a second. Mm-hmm. But like, oh, that's funny. You're still going to enforce this even after, you know, it's not his fault that it blew up or that's, whatever. That's what but Brian this wanted. is going to really pay off much later. But mm-hmm. right now here, it's also going to have another plot hook moment where Brian has an end to come back because he's bringing them this car and he's like, we can rebuild it. right? We have the technology. What's cool about this scene on a technical level is that we're going to get some master shots and then we're going to get a lot of single shots of each actor in the scene delivering their lines because there's a lot of people in this scene. Apparently, by the time they got around to shooting Walker's singles, night had fallen. Oh, no. And so the cinematographer had to do a crazy amount of lighting work and effort to make it still look like day so that it would match everybody else's shots. Which is a lot of light. So it's something to watch for in this scene. Yeah, that's to replicate daylight. That's a shitload of light you're pouring onto the set. And he does it really, really well. Like, if you watch for it, you can kind of tell a little bit of a temperature change in the light. But if you're not looking for it, you would never notice. It's really, really nice. So respect. Respect on that one. Let's get to the real action, though. It's time for the real action. And by real action, I mean a goddamn barbecue. Let's get there. Uh, yeah, they have barbecues every Sunday. Brian's invited. There's awkward time with Vince. Jesse does, like, the prayer. Vin makes him, like, oh, you reached in for the chicken first, so you gotta say grace. And he does a prayer to the car gods. And this was the one line of dialogue that the technical advisor of the film, Craig Lieberman, wrote that Rob Cohen followed verbatim. Everything else that... Their tech advisor wrote, they changed it up to make it a little more sexy when they needed to, even if it wasn't accurate. This one thing, though, like, nope, 100% Craig Lieberman. So good on him there. Good uh, car prayer. Yeah. Later, Brian is going to be washing dishes with 
Mia, Jordana Brewster's yeah. character. It's nice. Interesting, interesting shot that we get here because they are behind the sink washing dishes and the camera is outside and we're actually getting them through the window. I like that. And so there's all yeah. this stuff in front of them again, still, like just yeah. the window and the frames of the window and it's very voyeuristic. It's very painterly. It's a pretty shot. Go and Rob Cohen for some. It is that. a cool shot. Yeah. I'm not criticizing the shot. I'm just pointing out the shot. It's a very non-traditional shot that you would get here in this circumstance. So we're always making those frames interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Vince is going to be an asshole. He's going to insult Brian oh. for doing the dishes. And Mia is going to be like, you know what, bitch? Like, I actually am going to go out on a date with Brian because I want to prove a point because you're an asshole. <laughs> and then later... Hector is going to show up at Brian's work and he wants three of everything. (gasps) Three? Yeah, he wants three of everything and he wants three of everything for his Hondas. But wait, the Panasonic Bandits drive three Hondas. So this is suspicious. I mean, there's no other way. Why would anyone else have three Honda Civics? There's no explanation for a street racer who is really into cars and wants to have a team of good racers to have a bunch of cars. It makes no sense. He's got to be the Panasonic Panderer. Well, he might, because this is still enough to be suspicious if you're looking for a crew of street racers that have on the side three Honda Civics, and this guy is like, I will pay you a bunch of extra money if you can do a rush order on this uh-huh. job, because we need some stuff for these three Honda Civics really Gives quickly. Gives him a big lot of cash, too. Like, it's enough to be a little suspicious, which yeah. Brian is. So we're going to cut to a car meet in... Mm a parking lot and car meets are some street racing lingo for just locations where people bring their cars and hang out basically just to show off their cars talk about cars yeah so some of them are very cute car meets or a car meet cute if you will yes and yeah they're super cool some of the best ones apparently happen in what are ostensibly just the sort of service station road stops in Japan outside of Tokyo. There's like these crazy deluxe, amazing rest stops in Japan. And a lot of car meets happen in the parking lots there. And there's a lot of cool YouTube videos about car meets in the Tokyo scenes. Yeah, it's like service stop parking lots. Look them up. If you're into car porn, like that's where you go. Now, you know I am. Brian is going to use this car meet as an opportunity to sneak into Hector's place. And he's going to do it to this, like, sudden, like, Batman soundtrack, almost. Like, the music changes, and it's doing something that it has not done before. It's very bizarre, and it's very little Batman-ish. Unlike Batman, he's not good at it, though, because he gets caught almost immediately. Caught by Vince, Dominic walks out of the shadows, like, in this awesome shot. It's, It's so cool the way they light that. It's just... Vin Diesel walking slowly into the light, and it ah, oh, I love shit like that. It's a very cool reveal. Uh, it's a shot that was like was in every single trailer for this film. Yeah. And they ask him, "What the fuck are you doing?" Brian says, "Look, man, this guy he bought a bunch of things, and I'm worried about that. We need to check that out. So, what do you say?" This is about street racing. Yeah, because yeah. Vince is like, "You're a fucking cop, aren't you?" And he's like, "No, no, I just want to check and see what they have under their hood, so I know if I can beat him." Oh, Vince. Uh, your, your gut was just too good, Yeah, man. Vince doesn't believe him. Dom's a little bit more willing to. Meanwhile, we've ruled out Hector as a suspect because they do have three Honda Civics, but none of them are black and none of them have the right tires. Right, so, right, yeah, so, so far, Hector seems like he's clear. Mm-hmm. Dom's like, what are you going to do? Like, go around to every garage and check out what's under the hood? And 
He's like, yeah, exactly that. Sounds and like suit, they have Honda Civics and or the right tires. So they're going to spend a night just breaking into everybody's garages to see what shit they got. This is going to take them to Johnny Tran's garage where he has, what does he have in his garage? He actually does have DVD players. They've said DVD players are sold, even though in that first shot there was just VCRs and TVs. But here he's got, like, some legit ones. He's got, like, the $200 DVD players. He's got these high-end DVD players that can give you really good sound. And he's got some badass VHS-C camcorders that were running, like, $300, $400 back in the day. So this guy, he's got some good merch in his garage and lo and behold, he shows up to harass some guy about engines in his vehicles. It's a slightly intense scene. I remember vaguely back in the day listening to the director's commentary to this. And Rob Cohen talked about this scene where Tran is shoving an oil hose on this mechanic. And Cohen had to work very hard to trim down the intensity of this scene he says, I shot it like an R-rated movie, but it's cut like a PG-13 movie. So the violence in the scene and, I guess, close-ups of the guy's suffering were cut back a little bit to get a good PG-13 rating in the movie, in addition to other cuts that I'll know we'll, we'll talk about later on. And it looks pretty suspicious that this guy has just a bunch of boxes of yeah. Panasonic stuff Why in Why would you have those there? Strange. So this is Brian's new top suspect. We're going to have a nice little bonding scene at some point between Brian and Dom, where Dom tells the story of how his dad died in a car wreck, like a legit yeah. drag race, circuit race. And Dom went crazy and beat the guy almost to death who caused the wreck with a wrench. And that's what actually got him sent away for two years in Lompoc. Because Brian's superiors have told him, like, watch out for Dom. He nearly beat a guy to death. And as if Dom knew somehow that this information had reached Brian's ears, explains to him, yeah, I beat this guy nearly to death one time. I love the, like, it's some line where he says, uh, I had the wrench in my hand and I didn't mean to bring it down on him. But by the time I stopped, I could barely move my arm anymore. Like, wow, that's a lot of wrenching you gave the guy. He has a lot of feelings. You know. What this also establishes, though, are two other things. That he still has his father's car, this 1970 Dodge Charger. Which he has never driven. And it has been modded to hell with yeah. this, like, super crazy, awesome engine. Which, by the way, only appears in this one scene in its full entirety. Oh. This car, according to Craig Lieberman, never ran with this engine in it. Oh. So it was, like, this crazy big engine that they used to just turn on for this scene, and then they used a different engine later for the other cars that actually ran. But this is his father's car. It is a beast. Also, we establish here why Dom, for such a good driver and racer, cannot go legit as Hector wants to. Like, why he's been stuck doing the street racing scene instead of actually just doing legal races is because he has been banned from such things mm -hmm. because he went crazy at a legal track and yeah. nearly beat a guy to death. So that does kind of help, I guess, establish That's, some yeah. legit questions in terms of why Dom wouldn't just be, you know, racing. A attempted manslaughter can get you on the no-fly list for a few different spots. So, yeah, makes sense. But that's why he lives his life a quarter mile at a time. 
because in that 10 seconds, he's free. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Or like two minutes or whatever, however long the last race was. I don't know. Time is time. What is time in in this world? Sun goes up, sun goes down. It's just all craziness. It's wild. Yeah. Nice. Bren's like, okay, that's great. And I'll also, I think I'm going to fuck your sister. And Dom's like, yeah, okay. Just mm-hmm. don't break your heart. And so Brian goes out with Mia, bigot Mexican, yeah, and then nice she takes him for a ride. First in a car to prove that she drives, Joanna man. Brewster, she can also drive Fuck. really well. And then she takes him on a sexual drive Ooh, yeah. in a room that looks like it belongs to a 14-year-old boy because it's got these like weird taped up posters of cars all I over the wall. I think this is just the back room of the store that he works at because before we get to the bed, the camera is moving around the shelves of parts and other accessories that we saw at the store earlier. It's another awesome moment where... The camera is, like, weaving back and forth between these display racks before it gets to that back room where Brian and Mia have been hooking up. And he gets the call from his superior who says, hey, yeah, we're going to move in on Johnny Tran. Say yes if this is really what you want to do because we don't really have all that much evidence. You're kind of going off of circumstantial shit here. Do you really want to do this? Yeah. Okay, great. Rate it is. Yeah, and it is a fucking intense raid. We're going to get this raid montage set to this incredibly intense music. And the SWAT team is going to come in. And it it seems like it's not entirely necessary, considering their suspects have only ever tranked their marks. But yeah, whatever. Get him! He stole VCRs! He's a menace yeah. to society! Get this guy! Take yes. him down! There's a bit where... When they're taking Johnny away, his father walks up and just slaps him across the face really hard. You don't have to say, like, you motherfucker, look what you've done. You brought the cops into our house. How dare you? The stolen VCRs. Which would be a real downer of a scene, but you know what's a good upper of a scene? Is Dom and Letty getting it on in that garage. Oh, that's true. This montage is intercut with, like, Dom just, like, motorboating some boobs (laughs) in a garage. It's It's awkward. I don't know. It's, it's some, super awkward. There's some sexy choreography going on there, though the motorboating is a little like, what are you doing there? That's Which is what it ends on. So yeah. it's just a weird, yeah, it's just, it just doesn't work for me. Sex but... scenes in the PG-13 movie. What are you going to do? Meanwhile, Johnny Tram, he's innocent. Turns because out... all of those surplus DVDs in his garage, they were purchased legally. And I have to ask why. Why would you need that many DVDs uh, in boxes in your garage? I don't know, maybe he's selling them wholesale and they're offering them as a accessory in the vehicles. You know, wasn't that a thing of Pimp My Ride back in the day where they put DVD players in cars? That was a thing, right? Maybe he's doing that. He's just I mean, pimping the shit out of some rides. Maybe. This also might be a reference to some of the business deals that went south with Dom. So he might have actually purchased these from Dom in some capacity. So I guess that's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. And then Brian's going to get a pep talk from his superior officer because it's clear that he's a little torn because they're like, look, dude, I know you're fucking Dom's sister. I know you think he's great. And you want to be part of his crew. The only thing is, is that these guys are clearly our primary suspects, and you need to get on board with that. But his superior knows how to speak Brian's language, doesn't oh, yeah. he? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's gonna he's gonna tell him Tran and Hector. 
that they're just fumes, you know? And I'm like, good thing all these officers, even the cops speaking car metaphors, like, goddamn. You gotta speak Brian's language because Brian is, yeah. he, he needs it spelled out for him because Brian, Brian is a bad cop. He is. He, he really in is. In some ways. But yes, the officer does introduce a very interesting concept. And that's the core central glue that holds the Fast and the Furious together. And that's family. Yeah. And they're all kinds of family, Brian. And that's a choice you're going to have to make. A family of choice, if you will. I was like, who remembered that the whole like Fast and the Furious family premise began with the random officer dude? Because... I didn't. Yeah. Like, I did not remember that. I don't know when in the series the family theme became such an intense thing where, like, the go-to impression of Vin Diesel in these movies was just him saying, family, I don't got friends, I got family. That thing. I'm not really too sure if it was the fourth movie, fifth movie, somewhere in there, but... Fast Five, really. Fast Five, okay. Is where he really starts egregiously talking about family. <laughs> but the feeling of the family of choice does really start with the first one. But I did not remember that it, like, verbally started with this random officer. Yeah. Because, yeah, <laughs> the Fast and the Furious franchise is really all about this... The fan base is really all about this idea that there's, like, this family of choice thing going on. It's a big theme, big thing. It also seems like he's trying to get Brian to defect here, right? <laughs> he's like, you're going to have to choose your family, Brian. Mm -hmm. The sympathetic way of, like, obviously you're going to choose Dom and Co., but I don't know. <laughs> well, the next day, Brian and Dom are riding around. And they're going to race along this Pacific Coast Highway. Around Malibu. Yeah, it's where a lot of people in the industry actually live. And Cohen is going to remark that if you want a hard time filming, then just film near where movie people live. <laughs> because they are incredibly non-accommodating <laughs> to filming, which is ironic, yeah. but true. And <sighs> then they're going to pull up into... A seafood restaurant. Neptune's Net, which was also a location in Point Break, which this movie gets a lot of comparisons to. So, yeah, nice, nice little link up there. That's that's kind of cute. Yeah. And Brian's going to lay the situation down over some shrimp. He's like, OK, like, I want some shrimp and I want in on this. Yeah. I, I know you got some sort of side gig. I'm not an idiot. Mm -hmm. And I, I want in. And then Dom is going to lay it down right back. If Brian wants to steal Panasonic's, he's going to have to prove himself at Race Wars. Whoa, whoa, what? A super awkwardly phrased street race oh, that's going to be oh, out in San Bernardino. Wars of Street. Yeah, that they really should have workshopped that name <laughs> a little bit there. Like, hey, guys, yeah. could this be construed for anything else? Nah, nah, I'm pretty sure people nah. would know that we're talking about street racing. Nah, okay, we'll go with that. I mean, granted, in a car about street racing, like that is what your natural assumption is, but it's still an awkward phrase. Yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, this is going to be another scene in which they are racing against the sun to try to complete, and they're uh. not going to quite make it. So this scene is going to get very quickly progressively darker, but once again, it's a time where their cinematographer and their lighters are going to do a really nice job of really pushing in some fake golden hour daylight onto the scene. But you will notice if you look in the background as the scene goes on that 
the sun has set at that point. And so we also get closer and closer shots as the scene goes on. We start with a wider shot of them at the table and the sun is setting behind them. And then we're going to push in and we're going to keep pushing in closer and closer throughout the scene. And we're never going to get any more <laughs> wide shots like to reestablish anything because there was no light behind them at that point. So oh, fun little lighting moment. Now we're at Race Wars. Whoa, Race Wars. Whoa. Oh, right. Sorry. I forgot. Yeah, okay. San Bernardino. The crew or the, the film production is going to throw a big party and just invite the L.A. street racing scene to show up. Hmm. And they did. And so once again, all of the extras in this scene are just the L.A. street racing scene. They brought their own cars once again. Apparently it was 120 degrees that day out in that area and so you have that plus all the heat coming from 1500 cars that are there and in the lot also apparently there were no alcohol no drugs no fender benders just people who love to drive hey, man. That day, so the real drug is speed uh, i mean the real drug is velocity sorry yeah real <laughs> drug is velocity <laughs> michelle rodriguez she's gonna do a little race Jesse is also going to race. He's going to race for pink slips. Yeah. And he's going to fucking lose that car. This comes out of nowhere where Jesse just decides, yeah, I'm going to bet the pink slip of my dad's car. Well, why are you doing that? That seems like a horrible idea. Yeah. And everybody seems to tell him that it's a horrible idea. Yeah. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to do it, though. And then he loses to Johnny Tran. And so he freaks out and he's just going to drive. He drives his car off into the distance. Yeah. It's, it's uh, going to be under an amazing lavender pink and vanilla sky. Oh, that good <laughs> sky coloring is gorgeous. Gooey California sky. Always very nice. As far as I know, Brian never gets a chance to prove himself. Like, we don't see him race at Race Wars. Oh, so true, yeah. I don't know where this proving himself is, is or whatever. But later that night, they're going to be having a rave in the parking lot. And Brian is going to see Dom and co. drive off. And Mia be really upset that they're driving off. And so he's going to have to reveal to Mia his secret. Oh, no. He's like, I'm a cop. And she's like, the fuck, bro? He's like, this isn't about me right now. This is not about you. This is about your brother. And the fact that he's probably going to die because truckers, they're like arming themselves now with like shotguns and they're going full on road warriors. So we need to get there. Help me help you help Dom. And it's tragic that it's going to get dangerous because this was supposed to be their last job. Yeah, you know? Well, it's always that last job. I don't even know if it would have been the last job. Dom says something along the lines of, look, we're going to be grabbing $6 million worth of gear. We do this and we take a very long vacation. So he's not even really saying we're done after this. He's just saying we don't have to do this for much longer. Maybe we'll wait until... You know, Blu-rays come out. Then we'll do it then. Who knows? They're going to drive up to their three black Honda Civics that are stealthily parked outside of the way, uh, I guess. Of, like they're, uh, they're not in their own garages. They just are uh, they're over there, sort of covered up. Off the side of the race wars. They were only spectators to the war of the races. And everybody's feeling a little bit anxious because Jesse's not there and they shouldn't be doing this without Jesse. And then Vince and this other character, Leon, are going to lock eyes from across their cars, and it's the first time that I realize that these are two separate characters. <laughs> when we have this moment where like, they're both like... Leon hasn't had much to do the entire movie, so... Yeah, and he looks a lot like Vince, and I'm like, whatever. So they are going to get in their cars, and they're going to pull off this one last job, 
and Brian is going to get in his car with Mia and they're just going to be racing to try to catch up after them. That Brian is also, he's really going to rub salt in the wound there that he is a cop by calling the dispatcher and is like, I need you to trace a cell phone. They're going to trace Dom's cell about 40 miles away to the northbound 86, mile 114 outside of Coachella. <laughs> His car is like holding steady at like 110, 120. So if it's 40 miles away, that's still, what, about like 30 minutes? Am I doing that math right? It, yeah, something like They're that. still racing out there. This scene, um, when they're in the car, is also going to be shot in the studio in a stationary car with sure, the yeah. digital mm-hmm. scenery yeah, added. Sure. So yeah, they're they're stationary in a car, but you know they're they're driving. And then we're gonna get a very non-stationary action sequence of the heist. The sun has come up. It's the middle of the afternoon, it seems. The sun is just not waiting around in this movie. It is midnight one second, and in an hour, it's noon. The sun is just like, I'm going to do my fucking thing. Y'all figure it out. And I think the the racers themselves are thinking, well, damn, we were hoping to get this truck under you know, the cover of night, but the sun just booked it up to the noon, so what are we going to do? Going to go through with it. That's what we have to do, because we're the... The, the street racing thieves and gotta get yeah. some DVD players. Cohen did mention that that was like their number one constraint throughout in the entire filming process was just racing against the sun because they're trying to get these <laughs> shots and they only have so many days and like the sun just keeps, yeah, rising and setting. So we're going to have this like really cool, once again, a very Western heist, stagecoach heist type of scene where the cars are going to come up on this truck and yet, this truck driver, he's prepared. Yes. He's this, very prepared. Uh, they said the truck drivers were going to start packing heat, and yeah, this guy does. He's got a shotgun ready to go. We never see this guy's face too clearly. Robert Cohen has said that he wanted the menace to be the truck itself, not necessarily the truck driver. The strangest note on IMDb Trivia is that this is Kevin Sorbo, you know, also known as Hercules, which it's not. Yeah, it is not Kevin Sorbo. And I was confused by that because I was freeze-framing it, trying to get a good look at the guy's face, and I thought, I don't think that's Kevin Sorbo. So I went to the credits and looked it up, and it said, truck driver at the end, played by Kevin Smith. Not that Kevin, not Clerk's Kevin Smith, because it's definitely not him, but what an amazing cameo that would be. No, instead it's this guy, Kevin Smith, who actually does have a connection to Kevin Sorbo because Kevin Smith, this actor, was on Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and Xena, Warrior Princess, playing the god Ares in a number of episodes. So it's a really weird connection, and I guess someone got very confused when they are writing the IMDb trivia for this. It is important to note, IMDb trivia, it's kind of like Wikipedia. Anyone can do it, but unlike Wikipedia, you don't necessarily have to cite your sources ever. So really, anyone can add trivia. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has an IMDb account could add trivia to this, no matter how non-factual it may be. Yeah, always check your sources, guys. So yeah, if you have seen the trivia fact on IMDb that this is Kevin Sorbo, this is not Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, you know how I feel about that trivia tract? Do you know how I feel? You know what You know what feeling that gives me? You know what? how I feel from reading that? Did no- you feel a little disappointed? I felt a little disappointed! <laughs> the most important thing Kevin Sorbo has ever done. That's uh, now, in our opening. This action sequence, though, that doesn't have Kevin Sorbo in it, <laughs> is going to have a lot of really great things going for it. 
one of those things is just the fact that the actors are in so much of it. And so we're going to get the seven minute sequence homage to the Road Warrior. Yeah. For more or less, except for the cast is going to do almost all of their own stunt work in this scene. And how they were able to do that is that they came up with this little design of something they called the Mikrig, and that allowed them to hook the cars up in a certain way to this kind of tow system where the actors were able to be in the cars that were being driven and towed, basically, mm-hmm. in real time along this oh, other cool. like big truck. Yeah. And everyone is harnessed in to the cars, but they're still doing all of this jumping. They're still like you still have the actor who plays Vince holding on, even though he is all strapped up to this semi truck that's going like at least 60 miles an hour. So yeah. like that's still very respectable on a I feel like I stunt saw level for these actors. some interviews with actors who said like, oh, I wish we could go faster when we're doing this. And the production team told them like, no, no, don't worry. When we when you see this cut together, it's going to look like you're flying. It's all good. Yeah. And yeah, they're working on like a three mile strip of highway. And this scene apparently took two to three weeks to shoot. Oof. And what using the cast allowed them to do is really get these up close, very long takes of some of these action sequences because they're not editing around the stunt people. And so it's very satisfying. It's a very cool stunt work scene. And this is another time in which later they needed to go back in and do some PG-13 edits that there is actually footage out there of the editors talking about the edits and kind of like freeze framing what they took out. So there was a part where the cord was really digging into Vince's arm and almost looked like it was kind of like cutting down to the bone. And so they had to take that out for PG-13 rating. And then when he gets shot, they had to narrow that down to him just quickly getting shot and covering it up and then not really cutting back to it. So Ah, it was just trying to keep this down, the violence down, as it were. But really impressive scene. Yeah. And this truck driver is doing some intense damage with his shotgun. It's it's hilarious when you look at how invincible these characters are in later films when they're using their cars to fight tanks, to fight B-52 bombers, to fight nuclear submarines in the Arctic. They're all able to overcome the odds. But here, it's the three of them in these cars, and Vince is hanging off the side of this truck, and Dom says, Don't worry, I'm coming to get you. Trucker shoots at him. Okay, I guess I'm not coming to get you. Then I've just been shot at. So, (laughs) no. Letty tries to come around. It's okay. I'm going to run this guy off the road. Kaboom. Nope, I'm not. He shot at me, too. We're fucked. Well, that's what's really great about this first one, why it is my favorite one, because it's just, it's a lot more tangible, right? There's still that high octane, like, they're still way more impressive than your average person, but then at the same time, they are tangible scenes. It doesn't matter how good of a racer or a driver you are, a trucker with a shotgun will ruin your plans. Yeah, I mean, it definitely puts a damper on things. Mm -hmm. But... At some point, they get outside of the trucker's clutches. Vince is bleeding out. Brian has to reveal his secret once again to everybody. Yeah, including that he's Dom. indeed a cop. And Vin Diesel's acting the shit out of this scene, too, when he finds out he's a cop. He's just like, oh, oh God, you're a cop. Oh, but you're helping. And, oh, you're a cop. Ah, you're, oh. 
Yeah, the dude's gonna look up like, oh shit, yeah. like you betrayed me. Vince, meanwhile, is gonna be like, I fucking called it because <laughs> I've been saying that this whole time and nobody listens to yeah. me. And yet, because Brian is a cop, Vince will probably live. So <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah, so it's twist kind of like it. an interesting thing where yeah. Brian does have to reveal himself and show that he betrayed these people, but he's doing it to save them and save the one that has liked him the least throughout this entire thing. So it's a cool little complex moment. The medvac copter is going to come take Vince away. Meanwhile, the others, they got to bounce because what they've been doing is illegal. Police are after them. And so they're going to jump into one of the Honda Civics for a getaway. And we get Jordana Brewster's dilemma. There's a moment where the soundtrack is swelling and she looks between Dom and Brian and Dom and Brian. And she (laughs) finally decides to go with Dom. And I'm like... Is this really that hard of a choice? Like, this is, like, your family that you've known your entire life versus this dude who you fucked once and who, like, lied to you about his identity. Like, maybe not that hard of a choice. Yeah, don't... There will be other tuna-loving motherfuckers out there for you. Don't worry. You're good, girl. Go. But he does have Paul Walker's face, you know, so, like, that does... It's fucking L.A. There's a whole... Just throw a rock, you'll hit a good-looking guy in that town. Come on. He's so pretty, though. Okay, so (laughs) then... Eventually, Brian's going to come the next day, and now we care about Jesse again. Oh, this yeah. This is, like, the one big thing that's, like, about, this is a weird yeah, jump. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen this, like, kind of made fun of, and it is really strange. The fact that Jesse has risked the car, lost a race to Johnny Trance, and now he's in debt to Johnny, runs off, and Dom and crew are just super worried about him, but then they think, well... We better go do this job first, and then then we'll check on on Jesse and see how he's doing. And after we arrive back at Dom's house, Jesse does finally arrive in that red car from earlier. It's a white car. It's a white Jetta. And just is like pleading with Dom, like, Dom, I'm sorry, man. I screwed up. I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. And also at the same time, Brian has arrived too, and he's got a gun on Dom. It's a very intense scene. You would think this is going to lead to someone getting shot and by someone i mean either dom or brian because they both have guns here but no shock johnny tram and company come by and they fucking shoot up the house yeah they these motherfuckers just really like to just shoot up cars because yeah. that has been established as their emma they're move. gonna drive by they're gonna shoot up the car they're gonna shoot jesse with it jesse is down jesse is now out he's dead mm. presumably and confirmed in sequels. Yeah. They're going to have a high-speed chase that is going to be Dom and Brian, who now has a Toyota Supra, and it's pretty. <laughs> and orange. It's yeah, very orange. Very orange. And <laughs> Dom in his 1970 Dodge Charger. And they're going to go after Johnny Tran and Co. on their motorcycles. Motorcycles are crazy dangerous, so it's not going to end up well for Johnny Tran and Co. No. They're going to die. Brian's going to be like, call the cops, random bystander, because I got other shit I need yeah. to deal with. Like, let them know that these people are bleeding out on motorcycles. And then we are going to have the bullet homage scene where, once again, Raccoon's like, okay, so yeah, I borrowed slash stole from bullet. <laughs> Fine. And they're going to have this moment where the Charger and the Super are going to have their little final standoff. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go, as Cohen puts it, driving over a hill in Glendale Avenue and landing in San Pedro, which is impossible. And yet everything is possible in the speed of a cut. <laughs> sure, sure. You don't worry about it, right? Like They're, they're fast cars. Whatever, whatever, man. They're, 
the cars do that shit. Yeah, it's like, these are the two areas we wanted to use. Fuck it. So um, they are, yeah. (laughs) But it's fun because the place where they start out in is very, very hilly because they're up in the hills and they're just like flying off of these hills where there are moments where they are completely airborne because they're going too fast for the decline and... Mm. It is sort of exhilarating because I feel like I've accidentally done similar things in with like the hills in Ketchikan. I'm, I have a grandmother that lives in Ketchikan, Alaska, and there are some hills up there. Oh. And they're terrifying right. when it is wet and slick and icy. And you like go over those hills and for a second, like you are not connected to the road anymore. So I'm <laughs> like, I have empathy for this and it's terrifying. But they are going to race to the railroad tracks. Which is, are, are exactly a quarter mile away. From the lights they've stopped at. Because Dom says, I used to drag race around here when I was a kid. When the light's green, I'm going for it, man. Yeah, and we got all this like train symbolism happening because it's a Western showdown. So when the light turns green, they're going to go. And go they do. Yes, the light turns green. True to his word, Dom goes. Yeah. Well, he sort of goes. And they start their final race. Yeah, Dom has a little trouble like getting going because his car decides to do a wheelie first and also smoke yeah we're kind of breaking some physics here there are some different craig lieberman discussions again once again where they're like yeah we know that like you don't spin out and smoke at the same time yeah but uh we wanted to because it looked cool yeah (laughs) if you're doing a wheelie that means the car has a lot of torque and traction but if if the tires are smoking that means they have no torque and traction so it 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 does look cool whatever it looks badass it does look cool and it also, you know, it's going to rear up, basically, because once again, we're going with the Western motif, right? And so it's like the stallion rearing up on its hind legs, and it's a Western. Mm-hmm. So then they're going to go. And there's going to be this weird overlapping slow-mo moment that yeah. I, I'm not sure I like it's... it. Cohen likes it. He calls this technique smurring, which is a combination of smearing and blurring. Oh, God. Was he, sm- he smizing when he said that? Jesus. He, uh, it just looks a little bit weird to me. It's a little bit off. But then we get this interior shot of the car and engine, which we also have gotten in previous race scenes, where it's kind of like one of those episodic procedurals where suddenly we see the interior of the body as it sort of CGI goes through the from the throat to the stomach or whatever to show X, Y, and Z. <laughs> we get that with the car interior, and it's really cool yeah. as a way of just establishing how everything in this car is connected. But we do get this idea that Dom, of course, he's going to throw a rod. But once again, he has one more gear, one more magical non-existent gear to shift so that he can kind of keep going. (laughs) And they are going to beat this train by like a hair. The train is coming. They're going for it anyway. Mm -hmm. It's just a super close little scrape as they come just flying over these train tracks. Crashing through the little train barrier sticks. If you watch one of the trailers, you can actually see this shot before they edit the train in in post because it does show them jumping through and that barrier, but there's no train behind them. Yeah, so this is also one of the special features on the DVD is that they do have a lot of the original plates and then the composite shots. Mm, cool. So it's a very cool additional feature. So they did shoot a train sort of coming and then from the same angle right the same set camera they're Mm -hmm. going to shoot where there's no train these cars 
coming over the track, and then they're going to composite both of those two things together. The really cool composite shot is going to come when we actually get the train POV. So there is a moment in which we get inside the train as it's coming up on these cars. And so that as well is going to be a shot in which they are flying over these tracks, there's no train in sight, and then they are going to digitally add in what looks like the interior of the train, and they are going to just sort of push in that digital effect and a zoom effect so that it looks like the train is moving and we're coming closer and closer on those cars that are jumping the track. So mm-hmm. it's it's really it's another digital moment that's done really, really well and very seamlessly and in a way that doesn't necessarily scream CGI yeah. even all these years later. Now we're going to have these characters think, all right, we're chill. Yeah, we, we, like, we did it. That was exhilarating. Yeah, Brian can celebrate the victory because he does cross the tracks ever so slightly earlier than Dom does, believe it or not. So Brian wins this race, and he you would think, all right, celebrate that. But no, no, we don't get to celebrate for very long. Technically, this is supposed to be a dead tie because it's the moment where they're finally equals. But it does look a little bit like the Supers ahead. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Brian won. Dom <laughs> is going to glance over and he's going to grin at Brian. Brian's going to grin back. And they're going to miss the fact that this giant truck has pulled out onto the road. And Dom's car is going to clip it and go flying in the air and flip a few times before he lands upright breathing really really hard yeah and declaring that's not how that was supposed to go that's the best line of the movie i love that that's not what i had in mind (laughs) yeah it it is a really great delivery it's kind of like this is kind of great it's hilarious it's a strange dark comedic moment yeah but man all the shots of this car doing that flip are amazing i wonder how many cameras there were on this shot yeah so this is the scene in which there were eight different cameras that all filmed simultaneously this is all second unit footage so most of the car and stunt stuff were given to the second unit and this is another thing that is on the dvd special features super cool thing that they added here is that they have all of those individual eight reels there too that you can watch all individually and then watch the final shot that's been Uh, edited together and so it's really fun to see what they used and what they didn't Because there's, like, one camera that they have that's just sort of in its little bag in the middle of the road. And that camera is going to get crushed by the car. And we're actually going to get the shot up until then, right, of this car (laughs) as it, like, kind of rolls towards it and then just, like, smushes it. But one of the shots that does get used in this final edit are, like, right as that car is just coming right at it. So it does look like you as if you were about to just get crushed by this car. <laughs> and so, yeah, they sacrifice that camera to get that shot. Nice. But it's it's a very, very cool feature. Yeah. So, yeah, they did get this from eight different angles at the same time. Once again, so they only really had to do the stunt the one time. And Good. It's a hell of a stunt. all of the edits could, you know, match. Yeah. And following the stunt, following Dom's hilarious line, not what I had in mind, Brian helps him out. There are police sirens nearing, and Dom seems to accept that this is his fate. He would rather die than go back, and, well, he might be going back. But no. Twist. Brian gives him the keys to his car. Why does he give him the keys to that car? 
I owe you a 10 second car. Oh, and I was like, well, shit. fuck yeah, callback. Oh, yeah. He's damn. Like, you, you know what you're doing? It's like, I owe you a 10 second car. And you're like, dude. There's something really satisfying about yeah. that callback, actually, because like they set it up in a way that is set up initially as this throwaway joke. So you're like, mm. okay, I think this is all we're going to get from this because there is an immediate payoff initially with like, hey, you still owe me a 10 second car. It's like, oh, what an asshole. And then it serves again midway through for Brian to be able to like come back and show up at the garage. It's like, hey, well, I owe you a 10 second car. So right. here we go. And then yet it's like this poignant end to the movie. So set up, like, no, reminder, the code of the street. Off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The code of the street says like I need to pay my debts uh-huh. and I still have one. There you go. Here you go. Here's your 10 second car. And then Diesel, he's going to take those keys and he's going to walk off in one direction. And then Brian is going to turn and he's going to walk out of the frame in the other direction. And the camera's going to follow him for a moment. But that's all we get. As the sirens are just ringing on in the background, we are left with this question of, oh shit, what is he going to tell the cops? Is he going to be in trouble? I don't know. We might have to go right on into the sequels. There is something about this ending that does make me immediately want to go and like watch the next one. <laughs> you know, we're obviously we're not going to discuss any of the sequels in detail, but... Yeah, this this franchise has gone on. There is supposed to be F9 coming out in t- F9. sometime this year, in theory, if they stay on schedule. They might be going to space. Oh my god, cars in space. Hey, cars in space. Tesla shot a car into space, there's already precedent. <laughs> <laughs> they could go into space for the 11th and final chapter. Space exploration. It is weird watching this movie to think that eventually around the fifth movie they were just going to change into these high super drama heist films. Definitely. In the way that the Mission Impossible franchise has done very similar things where like the first movie is its own unique thing and very interesting filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And then the later's ones are going to be really interesting on like an effects level that you watch them for the effects and you watch them for the stunts you do not watch them for the plot yeah right? oddly i'm in the same boat as you for this one as i am in the mission impossible movies honestly the first one is my favorite just because it's such a unique complex experience that is something you never see in cinema terribly often still enjoy the other ones Okay, Tom Cruise, you're trying to die. Let's watch you have some fun with it. Yeah, you want a halo jump yeah. out of this aircraft? Let's do it. You want to scale the tallest building in Dubai? Fuck yeah, let's do it. You want to hold on to a plane as it's taking off? Yeah, let's do it. But, like, could I tell you the central spy mystery of those, like, yeah. later Mission Impossible ones? Fuck no, no I don't remember. No. <laughs> but I remember the stunts. Yeah. And it's like that with Fast and the Furious as well. <laughs> that's fine. That's yeah. totally fine. They have their place. Indeed. But the first one, actually a very solid piece mm-hmm. of filmmaking all around. Top five. Yes. Top five. My honorable mention goes out to all of the locations because they all contribute something here, so I couldn't really narrow it down to one. I just love, like I, said, I joked earlier, did you know this film was made in Los Angeles? Yeah, no shit. But it is a great showcase of all the different little spots around the city that you would Maybe, you know, obviously with Bob's Market, you see that a lot in other movies, but a lot of great spots around town that aren't normally utilized. So good in the movie for that. My number five goes 
collectively to Jordana Brewster and Michelle Rodriguez because they are two female leads who got some shit done in this movie and were take charge characters. And you weren't seeing that quite enough yet in 2000. So I like the fact that they brought that. Yeah, there's a really cool like female equality yeah. thing going on. There always has been with the Fast and yeah. Furious franchise. And I really love how much they evolved and improved their performances as time went on in the movies. Not that they're bad in this movie, obviously. They're not bad actors here. But they really were given some great performances later on. So it's like watching them here, it's just fun to look ahead and say, yeah, they're going to be fucking badasses uh, in the movies to come. So good on them. Your number five slash honorable mention. Honorable mention goes out to the street racing scene, uh, particularly the street racing scene in L.A. It is super cool that they showed up in this movie, yeah. like physically showed up in this movie, that they condoned and blessed the project with their presence. And it really does add a really cool, real and raw piece. It just makes me so happy to just know that I'm just like watching the scene as all those things are happening. My Fifth place goes out to the cameraman and the camera work on this film. Mm -hmm. It's dynamic. It's constantly in motion. It's great. I don't know. It was actually hard for me to choose my top five because I kind of, this is a weird one in which I think all of my top five are equal, that so they all brought their piece equally, yeah. but I will just give them in five parts, I guess. Yeah, I don't really think that either one of us will at any point say, how dare you make that number two and not number three? What the fuck, man? Like, no, they're... they're it's a hard call. It's a really yeah. hard call. Who's your number four? My number four is collectively Paul Walker and Vin Diesel. The two leads this thing that, like I said with our female leads, these guys would go on to evolve the characters in so many great ways. And the bond that these two have, both on the screen and what we know of them in real life, really came to define the franchise. So I guess in some ways, like these are top five bits for this movie and also just kind of for what is to come that we all know and love. But I love their work here. They're having fun. And I'm glad that this movie... Made a star of Vin Diesel because, geez, Vin Diesel had a really tough start to his career. There's actually this fascinating short film Vin Diesel made in 95, I believe, called Multifacial, which is a movie about a biracial actor who cannot get work because he is not black enough, nor is he white enough for any role in town. Yeah, that's a really great thing about the Fast and the Furious franchise, too, and why it has done so well with international audiences mm -hmm. is because as this franchise grows, it's just going to have such a strong multicultural cast of a lot of different people of color, a lot of different nationalities that are going to be represented, both within the cast as well as in their filming locations. Like, we're going to go very international throughout mm -hmm. this franchise. We're going to film in Dubai. We're going to film in Rio de Janeiro. They go to Tokyo at one point. It's just going to have, like, a lot of these great locations, and that's really going to appeal to a much wider audience. And was really a front runner in the understanding that there is some really great box office reception to be gained from actually having diversity in your movie. Yeah. <laughs> and like Fast and the Furious is for whatever reason gonna like catch on to that 
way before because we're just starting to like see mm-hmm. in Hollywood and other places them finally accepting or like realizing wait a second like there are a lot of different types of people in this world like we should maybe just not have all like white dudes in movies you mean if we don't just put white people in there it's okay so this is a very important movie to a lot of people because of that yeah my number three is going to the editing. I haven't been given my number four yet. You, You've just been talking about your number four. God, well, it is a pretty good number four, I gotta say. I, I don't blame you. What can I say? But your number four. My number four, which once again, all of these are ties. Sure, but, sure. Um, my number four is going to be the sound department. All right. The sound department is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Such yeah, well, great sounds. They, they work their asses off. Like I said earlier, that sound of Dom's car revving up, that was... A week worth of work for eight seconds of time in the movie. That's how much the sound department cared about this thing. And they are great sounds. What's your number three? My number three is the editing. So kind of related to yours. Editing does obviously include the sound. But I was gushing on the editing when we were talking about that street racing scene. The editing in this movie is very kinetic, very hyper, but is always coherent. They are always making sure you are aware of the geography, of the characters, of the racing, and it's just keeping everything clear for you, but never letting you rest too much. And that is a really hard thing to do, so I appreciate that. The head editor on this was, I believe, Peter Honus. I'm not too sure if that's how to pronounce his name, but I'm sure the guy also had help and input for Robert Cohen. But great job all around. The editing is really a big factor in why this movie is so amazing. Year number three. Number three is going to be the cast. Sure. So the the core cast, I guess, particularly mm-hmm. Paul Walker and Vin Diesel. Yeah. They are very warm presences throughout this mm-hmm. film, and they just work. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of chemistry with the whole core cast in this. And that keeps going throughout the franchise. They bring in a lot of great, charismatic people that you want to see stick around. Hence the family connection, you know? Family. Who's your number two? Number two is Erickson Kaur, who was the director of photography for this thing. Again, I'm sure he was, you know, had some input coming from Robert Cohen. But like we've said, the camera work in this movie is just so great. So the camera is always moving. And it's not just the camera is always moving, but it's always moving with precision. They hit their marks so well. When the camera moves or slides, where it ends up is a beautiful tableau. It starts on a good tableau ends on a good tableau. It moves when those four Power Ranger cars from earlier are coming into park, and it lands right as that other fourth and final car is coming in for a good landing. It just, like I said, it helps so well with the clarity of storytelling in this movie and also just creating such so many beautiful visuals with L.A. and with the colors of the cars. Just everything, camera-wise, in this movie is really great. Yeah. Number two yes. is going to be the stunts, yeah. the stuntmen, mm-hmm. stunt coordinators, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly the Dodge Charger Whew. car flip scene at the end. God like, damn. Respect, respect. Yeah. That thing like flipped two or three times or had a, it had to roll so many times for that scene. My God, whoever was in that was, they earned their keep that day. Yeah, which is the dude's name who I can't remember, but I should know because he's such a great. You'll edit it later on, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right. Who's your number one? I have a sneaking suspicion we have the same number one. My number one is Robert Cohen. 
We actually don't. Oh, okay, fine. Well, Proceed. huge fuck you to Robert Cohen then. My God. <laughs> but number one, for all of the reasons that we've been talking about for the past, how long we've we been recording? Like a day or so now? I don't know. <laughs> but I appreciate so much that this older gentleman who's been you know, working in Hollywood, who was unaware of a certain scene in his area of the street racing scene, had one look at it fell in love and just said, I am going to do everything I can to make this look as amazing as possible. Maybe not always completely technically accurate, but I think Robert Cohen, he understood when you need to move away from that a little bit. Real is nice. Interesting is fun. So you do that more. That's fine. And him bringing all these people together, working with unknown actors who were very fresh into their career and hadn't had all that much experience yet. He got great performances out of everybody. So good on him and good on him for starting everything. In some ways, it's unfortunate that he wasn't involved with the franchise as it would evolve further on down the, throughout the years. But I don't think he would have liked doing big heist movies, though. Yeah. He liked the car culture and he wanted to keep lifestyle. Like, he wanted this to be a lifestyle film. Sure. So I don't see him... Going the same direction. Right on, <laughs> yeah. It. Did he ever say why he didn't come back for the sequel? Because he wanted it to be and remain a lifestyle oh, film, okay. and he didn't think sequels were going to keep it that way for the most part. Okay. He was like, yeah, not interested in like franchising the show. I wasn't too but. sure if, like, yeah, the edited, like, the studios were already saying, like, there's no, 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 you got to go bigger, man. Gotta go. It's kind of like Robert Longo. Like, I just want to make a million dollar movie. No, here's all this money. And but in this case, you know, Robert Longo stuck around. Yeah. Robert Cohen. Yeah, I was like, nah, pass. Yeah, Cohen just said, mm, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. I've made my mark. And what a mark it was. So thank you, Robert Cohen. You're number one. My number one. I mean, yeah, like Robert Cohen. Respect. Love that this is a lifestyle movie. Still, my number one is the effects team. Uh, mostly the digital effects. Ah, okay. These effects are outstanding, especially for 2001. That was some work they put into this. Had to be a lot of MacBook Pros really crunching away at these effects back in the day. And, like, everything's just so seamless. And that racing scene that we talked about earlier, like, the first race is incredible. It's unique. It's an insane blend of practical and digital composites. It's a little otherworldly in the hyperspeeds and the blur of colors that are happening and all of the speed switch-ups and slowdowns and, yeah, mm -hmm. just incredible work. Incredible work. Yo. Yeah. All right. So. So. Yes. I don't have any actually lead into the safe word. Uh, we've gone through this. We, we tried to go through it as fast and furiously as possible, and but we, that doesn't really happen no. with us. We need to work on being a little too fast and too furious. It's just not our way, you know? Because here at Cinema of Cruelty, what can I say? We take it slow. <laughs>
I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!